and um, it's lovely to see you all this evening. Tonight we've got a very special guest, um, our dear colleague, Sidi Satji Arafat. Um, he's a professor of computer science in Saudi Arabia, um, has taught at universities throughout the world and uh, has several very interesting books to his name. Um, and tonight he is uh, addressing us on the late Thomist philosophy of John Dealey, which I think is going to be of great interest um, and uh, is without doubt very pertinent to a lot of the Masetas that we've been looking at. So uh, over to you, Sidi. Jazakumullah uh, khairan. Can you hear me? Huh? Certainly can, but I can't see you. Where are you? Are there. Over here. Right, let me pin you here. Here you go. Oh, let me get rid of me. Hold on. Bismillah. I think you might need to make me host so I can share my screen as well. Make you what? Oh, host. host. Uh, all right. Yeah. Make host. Bismillah. Okay, so can everybody see my screen? I believe so, City. Let me just make this bigger. So th this uh, PDF, it's actually in the shared drive as well. I just put it there if you want to sort of if people don't want to see the screen and uh, want to look at their own PDF, it's there as well. Um, okay. Right. Could we still have your video on, Sidi? Yeah, I think you should be able to see me, right? I can't see you. But maybe others. Oh, no, 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 I can't. I can. hey, Silly me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Bismillah. Um, has anybody had a chance to read any of the readings at all? I just wanted to know if they had any thoughts so I can keep them in mind. No. Uh, feel free to uh, put it in chat or whatever, uh, whenever. Okay, so uh, I just hope the, my sound sort of works out over the next hour or two. Okay, so. The, the whole point of today is uh, to go over, briefly go over some of the insights of uh, someone called John Dealey. Um, why? Because um, John Dealey is a Catholic philosopher and he's a Catholic philosopher that is close to his tradition, right? which is the late scholastic or scholastic tradition in general, but the late scholastic tradition in particular, which was, uh, which represented the kind of, um, the zenith or the kind of final version of that tradition, right? Uh, and so what we have with the work of John Dealey and uh, the late scholastic tradition that he follows um, is something that is close to our tradition, right? Uh, in many ways, close to our tradition, close to our classical philosophy, uh, both the peripatetic and the non-peripatetic, however you want to divide those. And something that has been tried and tested with modern problems, right? So he, he doesn't just, you know, uh, take let's philosophy as it is, but he develops it 
develop, de developed it to deal with problems that have appeared in the last 400 years. So when you're talking about late scholastics, you're talking about uh, primarily the work of uh, like this, so the summit of that philosophy, the work of John Ponto, uh, Portuguese uh, or Portuguese Spanish. I'm not sure of the geography at that time, but uh, my geography is really bad, but uh, mainly a, a Portuguese philosopher um, who dies, I think, um, uh, mid uh, 15th century and is a, uh, sometime in the 15th century and is a contemporary of uh, uh, Descartes. So that, that late version of that philosophy further developed by Dili, you know, uh, but prior to Dili also by others uh, um, is what you get with the you know, overall work of Dili. And what that deals with is the, are the main problems of the last 400 years, right? Uh, which have to do with knowledge, right? Or mental philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's close to our tradition and it deals with the modern stuff, right? Um, so it seems to be just based on that, if, if it works out, if it really does deal with it properly, a good contender for something that we can base our own retrieval of our own tradition on, right? So this notion of retrieval is a big discussion, you know, but I'm not going to go into it here. Um, so just a few disclaimers before I uh, get into this. I, I hope everybody can read this text. Uh, if it's not, uh, hope it's not too small. Oops. Uh, okay. So disclaimer, okay, this is going to be pretty rudimentary. It, it's not going to go into the deep details, uh, which are mainly pertaining to the third category of readings in the reading guide that I sent out. So it's mainly gonna to stick to the first two categories. And even then it's not gonna go into obviously as much detail as the book and the readings that were referred to there. Um, and uh, secondly, um, I'm, I'm a beginner in this, right? So uh, a beginner to both the scholastics, scholastic philosophy and also to Dili. So we're gonna do what is basically an overview of some of his insights. Um, and we're not gonna go into the fine-grained argumentation of each of those insights, right? At this, uh, you know, in, in this session. Um, so we're gonna look at his insights in particular from his understanding of intellectual history um, and then from this, we're going to go into his uh, understanding of uh, particular philosophical issues uh, in relation to what are called relations, in relation to relations. You can't get rid of that word, really. Um, and to science. Science are a kind of relations. And why these two things, this science and relations, why are they important anyway? That's what we're going to really explore, right? So first, what are we going to do? Uh, we're going to go into that uh, first set of readings, which is from the... Um, um, is uh, medieval philosophy redefined? Had it here somewhere. Yeah, this one. I think people have it. So it's from its medieval philosophy redefined. And it's uh, from the front matter, so the, the kind of uh, initial part of it. And it was on the initial kind of reading. And then we're going to go into um, uh, and what that is about is differentiating different kinds of sciences, philosophical sciences from non philosophical sciences, right? And then we're going to go into, um, and so that, that, that'll paint for us this, um, that'll show us like basically how to differentiate different intellectual periods, right? Uh, what it ends up being that. Then we're going to go into this notion of subjectivity and objectivity into the categories of Aristotle and into one particular period uh, of intellectual history called the way of things or one particular period that is characterized by the particular way they philosophize 
And that way is called the way of things. And we're gonna look at a few diagrams there. And then we're gonna go into um, the third part or the third, um, uh, third way, which is the way of science, which has to do with our, our modern period, right? Which I think Billy says starts around, um, uh, well, there was a kind of uh, pre-modern development of it, but it didn't really follow. But when it really started to develop is post-enlightenment, right? So sometime in the kind of late 19th, 20th century. And this way has to do with science. So it's called the way of science. And this is the way that also characterizes what he calls postmodern philosophy. Hence the title of the session and the talk, uh, um, you know, John Dealey and postmodern philosophy. John Dealey is known as a, or can be seen as a postmodern philosopher, where postmodern does not at all uh, mean what it means, you know, uh, for Derrida or Foucault or any of these guys, right? Postmodern here means to go beyond the modern uh, in a proper way, which um, these other philosophers, which we might consider to be postmodern, are not seen to be, not seen to be by Dealey. They're seen to be hypermodern, going more into whatever characterizes modernity, right? Whereas when he means postmodern, it means to kind of, you know, go beyond whatever is characterized by modernity. And this means for Dili to go back to uh, something of the scholastic, but not exactly there, but to develop it from there in a way that's different from modern philosophy, right? Um, so that's the rough idea. Okay. So I think everybody's, uh, most people are in now. There's a lot of people. Uh, okay. Uh, any, any, any quick points before we, does anybody have any points from like uh, their readings or anything they want to mention at this point? The new, the new people that have come in? No? Okay. Okay. So what we're going to do is I, I just, um, you know, <laughs> in my rush to prepare this, I copy pasted bits of the different readings. Um, so I'm just going to read it out. Uh, some of these things, it's about seven pages or so. Um, and it's divided into three main sections. So the first section is going to go into, as we said, the different kinds of science, you know, scopia versus uh, ideoscopic uh, and so on and so on. So uh, after each section, I'll pause for questions. Uh, uh, if you have, if you want to interrupt any point, please do. I mean, it's, supposed to be dispersive uh, and uh, yeah, okay, inshallah, let's go. So the first thing he says, one of the first points he makes, this is a, the front matter of his uh, medieval philosophy redefined. Um, and he, I think he quotes this or he develops this from a notion by uh, Gilson, um, that history is to philosophy as la uh, the laboratory is to science. Uh, and you notice there's a typo, this, this thing is full of typos, so please uh, forgive me for that. The history is to philosophy as uh, the laboratory is to science. And this is something which, um, uh, as soon as I mentioned Joson, uh, Sidi Karim came in. <laughs> so, uh, okay, the history is to philosophy as uh, the laboratory is to science. Um, so the, it's not just something that is uh, optional to study when you're doing philosophy, but somehow you, you can't really do philosophy without looking at history, right? It, it, it's uh, essential to it, to that study, to that, to the doing of philosophy itself. And he said there that uh, the analytic tradition has only realized this pretty late, right? Analytic philosophy tradition. Um, so this, this is why we're going into, and this is why John D.D., uh, his, his narrative, intellectual narrative, meaning the historical narrative, is not something external or uh, accidental to his overall philosophy. It's actually very crucial and central to it, right? The two things are mixed. History and philosophy are mixed. We can't really, to, to separate it would be to do something that's unnatural for philosophy, right? where that is not the case for uh, 
maybe, uh, you know, uh, uh, physics or chemistry or, you know, natural science or whatever. Okay, uh, when it says DEP fee, these are uh, references to uh, the book uh, Descartes and Poinsot. So here's a quote from that. Uh, the sort of science that is founded upon, and we're trying to, we're trying to figure out here uh, what philosophy is, right? And here he says, uh, philosophy is a kind of what is called a sinoscopic science, right? And philosophy is the typical type of sinoscopic science. Whereas uh, what we call the modern sciences are different, they're idioscopic, right? So this differentiation between the sinoscopic and the idioscopic, uh, he introduces to understand the difference between pre-modern and modern uh, uh, philosophy, right? We'll see how he does that. But uh, this distinction he initially gets, he meaning Peirce and then Dealey from Peirce, uh, from ben Jeremy Bentham, right? So it says here, the sort of science that is founded upon the common experience of all men was recognized by Bentham under the name of sinoscopy uh, uh, or sinoscopy, in opposition to idioscopy, right? Which discovers new phenomena. Sinoscopic knowledge as critically accessible to any human animal as semiotic, and I'll come back to what this, uh, this strange little bit here means. And idioscopic knowledge, which presupposes uh, sinoscopy. Now, I, there's two spellings he uses with E or o, this funny kind of OE, special letter. Uh, I, I, I don't really care about that difference here, so you'll see it you know, in both ways, but they mean the same thing. Okay. And idioscopic knowledge which presupposes sinoscopy, uh, but goes beyond it by uh, means of specialized researches and the testing of hypotheses, often by mathematical means, and yet always returns to sinoscopy as the soul is in, uh, indispensable support of the difference between the closed unto itself objective world of pure animal perception. This is something we're going to talk about later. And the objective world, which includes human understanding as an opening onto the, to, to the infinite world or to the infinite through the very action of science, which created the objective world in the first place as transcendent and superordinate to while inclusive, partially also of the physical environment, the world of things and their own being independent of being known. Um, some of this, of course, you know, we're not familiar with, right? So the, it, it, it don't make sense yet. Uh, but initially, the idea is the sinoscopic is, or sinoscopic science or sinoscopic knowledge is what is available to us uh, uh, without instruments or special uh, training, right? So here, then he says the terms as proposed have a Greek etymological, etymological root, uh, sinoscopic meaning directly viewed uh, as an unaided sense perception, idioscopic meaning specially viewed as an observation enhanced by instruments and control. Um, this controlling. Uh, ends up, uh, I mean, th this controlling means to develop uh, certain mustalahat um, and other kind of um, uh, specialist lingo, which uh, restricts what you're looking at, right? So it's not the world in general, it's something that is restricted in a very specific way. Okay. So let's continue with this. Now we know that what sinoscopic and idioscopic means very, very briefly. Uh, we're going to go deeper into the meanings later on. What happened with scholasticism? So now he's going back and talking about the historical element. Scholasticism thrown out, uh, got thrown out because people became enamored by experimental science, which is what idioscopic science, right? So not philosophical science, right? 
So with the discovery of uh, scientific method, mathematization, uh, methods of mathematization, uh, instruments and experimentation and so on. Uh, due, uh, and so due to the successes of that, where prior philosophy failed, people got enamored by it, right? Um, and so the result became the following, right? In the modern time. So these philosophers uh, of the old type, the sinoscopic guys, they can ask questions here, you know, go ahead and ask questions, but it's the scientists that must give the answers because they really know, okay? So this is the, you know, what things became. This is the attitude that then took hold in modernity with respect to its uh, uh, um, attitude towards uh, sinoscopic sciences of philosophy. But then, and this is the, you know, the, the question he raises at the start, our idioscopic knowledge is actually based on our sinoscopic knowledge. So our knowledge, that is not aided, right? That do, does not need instruments and specialist training, you know, just everyday knowledge, right? Um, that must be the basis on top of which we become scientists, right? And do scientific kind of uh, reasoning and so on, right? That meaning modern scientific experimental and so on, right? And if the sinoscopic or pre-scientific knowledge has problems with it, it's not valid, maybe because we can't trust our senses and all this kind of stuff, right? Then everything that's based on it is also problematic, right? So you can't sit there and say, I believe in science, you know, uh, about what my instruments tell me, but I don't know about my sense knowledge, you know, that's a bit iffy. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying everybody says that, but what you find in a lot of modern discourse is something that actually reduces to that in many ways, right? Okay, let's continue. Um, Uh, I think that there was something else I wanted to say here. Uh, ah, so uh, this notion of semiotic, I'll just mention it very quickly. So, um, sinoscopic knowledge is critically accessible to any human animal as semiotic. So, what this means is sinoscopic knowledge, meaning philosophy, uh, let's see, an Aristotelian philosopher, you talk about categories, uh, or you're a Platonic philosopher, or you're a Kantian philosopher, wh whatever it is, right? Um, to, to actually philosophize and to talk about philosophical things, to talk about the, the, the technical terminology, uh, you, you're not talking about something which has an immediate basis in, in, in the world, right? Immediate sense basis. It is something that's on top of that, okay? And what is it that is on top of the sense-based things? What, what is it on top of, uh, you know, this cup or, you know, whatever, like a cat or a tree? What is it on top of that that one needs that one needs to consider or that that needs to be there for us to be, for philosophy to be uh, um, done in the first place, right? And that is uh, basically science, right? So it's to see this, um, it's to see this cup as not only a cup, actually the cup is a really bad example, is to see the cat as not only a cat, but as, you know, let's say a, a substance, right? So the notion of substance is philosophical notion, uh, or let's say, you know, to see it as a, a object or an idea or whatever it is, right? To see that is to overlay the world of the senses, the sense-based object with something else, right? With what you'll see is a bunch of signs, right? Signs meaning those things that are, or that take us to other than what they are, other than what uh, they initially are, right? So, so if I have a, just imagine this is a cat for a second. Um, by looking, if by looking at a, if I have, if I'm philosophizing or if I have philosophical discourse, it's when I look at this cat. But by looking at the cat, I, my mind immediately goes to this notion of substance, 
or you know, if, I, if I'm a scientist, you know, it goes automatically to the notion of animal or a particular type of animal or you know, in, in the kind of genus and uh, difference and uh, whatnot tree of things, right? So that idea of you know, something that is immediately presented, but then our going away from, from that to something else, that is a kind of sign action, right? And it's this ability to recognize something as not just what it is, but what it points to, other than what it immediately is, uh, that is the semiotic nature of ourselves as a particular type of animal, right? Uh, human animal as semiotic, uh, but we'll come to that a bit later. Okay, so the next bit, um, uh, please uh, interrupt me anytime with uh, anything that's not clear or uh, uh, want to go further into, any questions, right? No, my chat is not on. Uh, okay, it is on, right. Okay. So now, so what happened is uh, at the break of modernity from the pre-modern time, uh, sometime in the uh, uh, 15th century or so, uh, scholasticism, got, scholasticism got thrown out. You have idioscopic science with all its discoveries and experimentation and so on. Okay. But now we're gonna look at, uh, we're gonna go more into that division a bit later. But now we're gonna look at um, what is it uh, that characterizes uh, uh, basically this notion of semiotic here, uh, human ability to philosophize, right? So it says here, it says in uh, you know, the, the, that book, only humans wonder about that which is other than themselves in their own right, which is to wonder about things. Only humans conceptualize subjectivity. It's a notion we'll come into quite a lot. A subject here is an independent individual something, a being in itself, um, uh, substance specifically, or in another, which is an accident in a substance. So the cat is a substance, it's individual. Uh, it is separated from the sofa and the dog and the tree and everything else. It doesn't mean individual in the sense or independent in the sense that it's not dependent on God. So we, all of this, when we're talking about all of these things, we're talking about the here and below, right? The, the world as we see it around us. Um, it, it's not really talking about that which is beyond, right, at the moment. Right? We, we will a bit later. So that is, while all animals consider that which is other in terms of its relevance to it, uh, we'll come to that in a second, as the sheep considers the wolf as something to run away from, um, only humans consider that, uh, that other independently of their interest to it, or in addition to their interest to it. Thus only humans have awareness of things as things, and this is effective or made effective by the nature of human faculty, specifically in that animal perception that humans share with animals is subordinate to human intellection. Okay, so when we philosophize, right, when we think about things, um, uh, this means to consider things in, in their own right, right? Um, but that is not the only way that we consider things, right? We also consider things in what are called lower ways, right? Uh, perceptually. So that is the same, and that is something we share with animals. So when a sheep um, looks at a wolf, right, it doesn't really um, understand the wolf in a way separate from itself, from its own interest. It only considers the wolf in terms of what it means to it, right, which means, you know, it's something that it should run away from, right. And this is affected by a particular faculty in the sheep, in animals, uh, I think in the Arabic tradition we call it the waham, right? Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, in the Latin tradition is the estimatio, uh, 
the thing that estimates that that means something uh, more than you know some sort of mathematical estimation or whatever. Um, uh, and 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 here it's it's the um, uh, yeah it's basically one of the faculties of internal perception, right? So when you look at something uh, according to your own interest, is that faculty that does that job? Animals can only look at things with respect to their own interest in it, as to whether should whether they should go towards it or be uh, interact with it, which is the plus here, whether they should run away from it or whether it doesn't mean anything, right? In terms of plus or minus, going towards it or away from it or whatever, right? So that that is animal perception. We have that animal perception, but we have something more than that. Okay, we have something called intellection or human intellection, which is what allows us to see that thing not in terms of plus minus or zero, but in terms of what it is, irrespective of our interest, uh, our immediate uh, survival and or other kinds of interest to it. Okay. Um, so it is because humans have this something beyond perception, beyond our internal sensations as faculty, which is our intellect, or, uh, which can do intellection. Because we have that, that we're, and that we're able to look at things in their own right, that we're able to do philosophy. Okay, so philosophy is about looking at things according uh, in their own right, right? The ability to look at things in their own right, right? Uh, of course, from that, we can also analyze the, you know, the, 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 the things as they are with respect to us and with respect to our own interests, right? We can do all of those, those analyses as well as human beings. But if we were not human beings, we couldn't look at things in their own right, right? Okay. So this is the, uh, um, what makes philosophy possible, right? This nature that we have, right? Okay. So what is beyond man? Uh, um, uh, so this word man should not be there. Right. So what is beyond right, that uh, immediate desire satisfaction, right? This uh, uh, sheep going to the wolf or the you know that person going to some you know somebody that's scary or whatever, um, plus minus or zero. Right? What is beyond that immediate uh, you know desire satisfaction, as taken care of by this internal and external senses of man, right? Uh, it is that tendency to wonder about things, especially it's the faculty of intellection that allows us to do this wondering, but it generates this tendency to wonder about things, material things initially, and then of the causes or fuller realities of those things as to whether those causes are found amongst those things or beyond, to the extent that beyond is accessible to the human intellect. And so what Dili says in the introduction there is that we have three answers to this, right? Uh, as to, so first we have this wondering, right? That's the nature of man. A wondering about things, material things. And then the wondering about where these things come from or you know, what constitutes them or um, you know, what allows them to be the way they are, okay? So we have three, three answers to you know, what that is that allows them to be the way they are, right? Um, so he says there's a materialist answer from atomists like Democritus that these causes, that which allows them to be the way they are, are in that same material world. Or then the Platonic one, which places these causes well beyond this world, uh, beyond the world of material things, such that these material things are shadows of those causes. Right? And then you have the Aristotelian answer, uh, which assigns, uh, which says that in fact, uh, that which is beyond this world 
that is causing this, right? That is only one aspect of the causation of this thing. That in fact, these causes also have a sensible aspect as well. So there's a two and one kind of thing going on there. From the second and third perspectives here, um, the Platonic and the Aristotelian one, you eventually get to theology, right? Uh, so from this wandering to wondering about where things come from to wandering from wondering about the causes of everything and God, right? Because God is that which is beyond that is causing, right? Um, and this wondering about God, God, this theological thinking is what initially justifies uh, is the main justification of stereoscopic science. Because it's something that this particular subject matter of God, it cannot be settled by idioscopic science, sense-based stuff, you know, looking at the, you know, the, because God is not sensible, okay? Even though he's manifest everywhere and so on, but he's not sensible, right? Okay. So what he says is this, um, so this is a kind of, you know, pre-medieval story so far. When you get to the medieval times, um, as you get to the medieval times, you have different traditions. You've got, you know, Aristotelian tradition, Platonic tradition, and so on, going into the medieval West, right? Um, and then what you have is when we have this movement from the medieval to the modern, or the pre-modern to the modern, um, you have this kind of violent transition from something that was very cinescopic to a kind of killing off of the cinescopic um, and replacement with the purely idioscopic. And this is very strange, right? Very strange because these are not opposing kinds of sciences. They're meant to be complementary. One does a particular job and the other one does another job, right? They don't do the same job, right? And they're actually complementary. So let's see what this means. And well, firstly, why it happened and what it means, right? So the move to idioscopy was violent. It wasn't smooth. Uh, Dili uses a, um, a story of Galileo quite a lot. Galileo, is, uh, Galileo uh, engaged in idioscopic science. He did experiments. He used telescopes to look at the, the, the heavens and so on. He says here, in fact, the overconfidence in stenoscopy uh, and religious authority that Latin scholasticism had unwittingly cultivated served only to block the natural transition to modern preoccupations with idioscopic development of science. And to make of the inevitable transition from natural philosophy to experimental science and mathematical uh, physics a tragic comedy instead of a natural maturation. And inevitable, uh, and inevitable, the transition in question uh, surely was for, as Aquinas had learned from Albert, it is no more than the proper maturing of human intelligence in its natural orientation to know the things of its surrounding environment, right? So what, what he's trying to say here is that um, when, you, when you're a philosopher, so you're, you're a cinescopic scientist, right? You're, you're, just look, you're using only your senses. It is natural to want to go deeper into things, right? So you know, as a philosopher, a philosopher of nature or just a philosopher, if you had a microscope with you, you know, that would not be something that is uh, strange for you to want to use and discover more about that same reality. No, it's, it's natural to want to do that. Okay, so there shouldn't be this kind of division between the two and instead a kind of complement, right? But why was it the case that it sort of broke away? Uh, because the idioscopic, the natural idioscopic development was something that was initially uh, uh, frowned upon, right, by the church, right? 
because of certain things like Galileo trials and other things, right? Uh, so it created this impression of division, which is not really a division, right? Um, it just created like bad vibes, basically, right? Okay. And on top of that, what the, the, the Latins at that time, the pre-modern Latins, what they didn't realize, because they're focused on stenoscopic science, right? Um, was the potential of the idioscopic in complementing the stenoscopic. So they knew that there is a complement, but they didn't know how, you know, the, the kind of extent to this complement, right? How much you can actually develop idioscopically and how could this actually complement things? They didn't really picture this properly, right? They said just, just how limited the senses are when, when unaided by instruments and just how essential mathematics would prove to be uh, in the systemization of experimental results, of course, was something that the Latin age could hardly even glimpse, right? So their idea of idioscopic something um, and the idea of uh, um, the relation between the stenoscopic and idioscopic was preliminary and not sufficient in, in the Latin time. And so when the trials of Galileo and all these other things happened, the, the overall kind of movement against the idioscopic, which needed, you know, didn't have to happen, right? Because there's nothing wrong, wrong with it, right, in itself, um, when you understand its place, um, that all kind of shifted the course of history, right? So we have the idioscopic as a result, you know, the people that then um, had problems with the church and the way that science then developed, uh, you know, in a way that was no longer uh, connected to whatever was associated with the church as much, right? Which is the stenoscopic sciences, right? So it's kind of like throwing away the, you know, the baby with the bathwater, the baby being, you know, the entirety of stenoscopic science and the bathwater being, you know, uh, issues that, uh, a lot of artificial issues that happened uh, that painted uh, stenoscopy as being incompatible with idioscopy, right? Uh, and so on. Okay. We have this idioscopic taking over the space of the stenoscopic, such that whatever is still stenoscopic is in a confused way entangled with the idioscopic, right? So when you do idioscopy, right? When you go and do experiments, of course, you're, you have philosophical presuppositions. You're using your senses, uh, you're using all that you'd use as a philosopher, but you're adding some things on top of it, right? Uh, like instrument, instrumental based or instruments or you know math, mathematics and so on in order to understand these aspects of nature, right? So when you're doing idioscopy, it's not that you're completely getting rid of philosophy, right? You're not getting rid of your philosophical presuppositions. You're still using them, right? But you're not using them in a kind of uh, intentional kind of way, right? It's all mixed up, right? So it says that belief that the whole of human knowledge could be translated without remainder into terms determined by the methods and terminology of experimental and mathematical science defined the age of enlightenment, right? And generated this unique enthusiasm. So yes, we're moving past Descartes now into others, uh, uh, into the later uh, period, but it's still, you know, this is still the modern period, right? 1600 until, you know, uh, sometime in the last century, let's say. As long as the belief that the critical use of human intelligence is coextensive in principle with knowledge, uh, scientific in the modern sense of idioscopically derived knowledge, uh, just so long could enlightenment as a historical epoch last, right? So what is what characterizes this enlightenment? Uh, that knowledge is only idioscopic knowledge. Uh, if it's idioscopic knowledge, right? Uh, that's it. There's there's not there's nothing. Whatever else has to be, whatever 
other kind of knowledge that they are, they have to depend on the idioscopic. Uh, that's what characterizes the uh, enlightenment, right? According to uh, Divi. As the seasons of the year transition into one another, sometimes abruptly, but sometimes almost imperceptibly on any given day, so do the ages of understanding come and go, usually not suddenly, but by often unnoticeable grades of transition. Just as there are those today who still live in the Middle Ages or in the 19th century, so there are those today who still cling to the Enlightenment belief that science in principle is the whole of human knowledge, philosophy is but a dream. But once a general realization to the contrary had taken hold, as soon as it became apparent, the critical mass of thinkers that stenoscopy not only could not wholly be replaced by ideoscopy, but that the very enterprise of modern science depended upon the prior and continued validity of stenoscopy, at that moment, the enlightenment is over or was over. The early enthusiasm of the new era casting superstition to the winds and dogmatic authority over individual thinking along with it, temporarily blinded the protagonists of the enlightenment to a truth which would reimpose its, its evidence with time. Right. Um, so as soon as you realize um, that, wait a minute, you know, all the ideoscopical things we're doing and all this, this understanding that everything we do must uh, depend on ideoscopy and not the other way around, right? Uh, as soon as you realize that that can't be the case, immediately you, you weaken the whole, you know, the, the whole sort of uh, worldview of the Enlightenment, right? The, sort of soft, uh, the, the kind of, uh, yeah, the worldview of the Enlightenment. So this dependence on the ideoscopic, on the cinescopic is as Ashley says, uh, uh, Ashley is another uh, Catholic philosopher who uh, close to Delhi, I think he passed away recently. Uh, he, has, he has several really good books actually, that's worth uh, looking into. Um, so Ashley puts it in a you know, sort of concise form. If what little I do see unaided by instrumentation could be proved to be in positive error, then no instrument could ever help me arrive at the truth, not even at probable truth. If my senses deceive me in reading my instruments, these instruments are useless epistemologically. Uh, these instruments are useless epistemologically all of natural science depends on basic natural sense experience. Even though idioscopic knowledge carries us far beyond what could ever be established or even guessed at by purely cinescopic means. Uh, is that any, any question uh, about that so far? Any sort of points? We're coming to the end of the first uh, section. No, is that okay? Okay. Okay. So then, so it says, you know, as soon as you realize this thing about, you know, the relation between idioscopic science and cinescopic science, the kind of enlightenment uh, bubble or, or kind of imagination that they're in kind of starts breaking apart. Okay. Um, now, the person that really thinks uh, properly challenged the enlightenment and did so by um, uh, and talking about these distinctions of the different kinds of science and, you know, doing much more than that as well is Charles Peirce, the American philosopher, uh, who I think died, what, late, late 20th century, maybe? I'm not sure, or, or early 21st, uh, I can't, can't remember. So Peirce is the first serious challenger to the Enlightenment. He differentiated the different types of science, which is presupposed in, in, in validity of the idioscopic. Prior to Peirce, philosophers appealed to common sense as the basis of its legitimacy, prior to and independent of modern science. Science and common sense are based on everyday experience, but this experience by itself, they, meaning the idioscopic scientists, 
but insufficient for scientific purposes. So the purpose of science is what? It's to explore human experience uh, in general, and it may require experimentation to advance knowledge and to evaluate and express in critically controlled terms the framework within which research is conducted. Right? Uh, so there's a, I think there's a typo somewhere here. Um, so the purpose of science is to explore human experience, which does not, again, mean um, you know, something mental, right? Uh, human experience uh, is experience of things, right, uh, out there, you know, so that, that's included, as well as, you know, uh, um, the study of uh, how we come to know those things, or psychology and so on and so on, and epistemology and so on, right? Okay. Um, so science in general is about exploration of all these things. Um, but it's done in a critically in critically controlled terms, right? This is the mustalahat, right? Uh, this is the framework. So you, you don't just you know study things in general. You study things in a specific realm of reality, and you define a method uh, methodology to do that. So it's not just anything that you just start describing. You do start description as part of it, uh, but then there there are, you know the forming of propositions. There's a uh, yeah, mathematization, etc., etc., etc. Depending on which kind of science you're talking about. Yet the articulation of this framework, this critically controlled framework, you know, the, the methodology of science, right? Uh, modern sciences, let's say for this particular example, this, the articulation of this framework and independent results attainable within it, within it re requires science, right? Which is, oh, there's a, uh, a 1914, yes. Uh, uh, thank you, Sidi Wasim, Sidi Omar. The articulation of this framework and independent results attainable with it, uh, within it requires science as critically controlled objectification. So let's say you have physics, right? And physics, uh, uh, let's say I want to just do, you know, basic, uh, not quantum physics, but Newtonian kind of physics of classical objects around me. Uh, I have to first define, uh, I come, you know, as a physicist, I already have a set of presuppositions about the nature of, of this realm of reality, this part of the world. I have, uh, you know, technical terms like forces and velocities and, uh, you know, co coordinates. And I have uh, geometry with a particular mathematization of the space, all of which I use uh, to talk about things, right? Now, that which uh, talks about my presuppositions as I do that, that which talks about how I build up that method, those terms, right? Those terms, that geometry, the, 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 you know, the notion of force, the notion of velocity, et cetera, et cetera. So that which uh, talks about how I build those things up, right, is something that's outside of the science which uses them, right? And that is the cinescopic science we're talking about, right? So all these terminologies which restrict the way I look at the world, uh, this restricting the way I look at the world is the critically controlled objectification of the world, right? So you look at the world, but you take only some part of it, you objectify or cut out some parts of it, right? Um, so that which uh, allows me to study how I cut those things out, uh, the mustalahat then th that comes from it, right? That is the cinescopic, right? So it is the cinescopic sciences that does this. It has its own legitimacy, and early moderns lost track of it as things moved fast and idioscopia was finally established. The, the philosophy of cinescopic science not only precedes idioscopic and provides its framework, but shows the inevitability of the idioscopic as a maturation of the cinescopic. So the, the idioscopic naturally comes out as a maturation of the cinescopic, or supposed to anyway. Okay. So 
So one of the, uh, the, the one of the key problems that the Dili tackles on, given this right in his the entirety of his work, is how do you move beyond modernity in matters of philosophy and philosophy while yet retaining the huge gains of modernity in developing science as idiosophy? Right? Uh, does Dili answer this comprehensively? No. Right? There's a long way to go here. So now I'm, I'm going to show you a quick diagram of what uh, some common fields of knowledge that we might know about look like under this categorization, right? So this is the same one as from the, the, the reading guide thing, okay? So this is Thanospathy, uh, it's central to everything else. What, what are these everything else? This is just a basic characterization from the work of uh, Scott Payne. Um, so you have idioscopic of the very small, you know, quantum theory, nuclear physics, et cetera, of the very big, astrophysics, astronomy. Uh, this is not like a rigorous characterization, you know, because when you say big or small, what do you mean exactly, right? But, you know, um, there's geology, astronomy, astrophysics, and so on. So there's two ways to divide the idioscopic, and another two ways is to divide it into um, very uh, naturally versus culturally complex. So what you have as the quote-unquote social scientists uh, uh, would be in the latter category on the right, and the uh, things like evolution or any any study of nature going all the way back, uh, natural complexity would be here. Uh, Dili is not, uh, he does have his own understanding of evolution, which I haven't really looked into much, um, but that's another discussion, right? Um, okay, uh, so the cinescopic meaning what? Philosophy primarily, but here we also link to the what would be known as the humanities or the arts and also uh, uh, Theology and religious studies and so on, right? Um, but again, I'm not going to go into exactly how they all relate together uh, in this. Okay. Okay. So that, that's the first section. Anybody have any uh, questions about that? No, any points? Okay. So now we're actually going to talk about um, uh, this, the, the pre modern period, specifically that kind of philosophy that was done then which really calls the way of things, okay? Um, and we're gonna talk about it with respect to how it relates to the current uh, uh, or the postmodern way of philosophizing, which really calls the way of science. So the way of things in relation to the way of science. Right? So it says, it says here, the, the pre-modern period was not only characterized by its focus on the cinescopic, but also in its method of understanding uh, uh, that focus on things, that is subjectivities, this is a realism, right? We are able to know things, uh, uh, we are able to know what things actually are, right? Um, now subjectivity, so uh, I have to explain this notion of subjectivity versus uh, objectivity. So usually by, when I say sub something that's subjective, I mean something that only I know, right? That is particular to me as a human subject, right? That is in my mind or whatever, right? That is not what Dini means, or that is not how the word uh, subjective or sub subject, uh, uh, that's not what it meant in pre-modern philosophy, right? Um, then you have the other notion, which is object, which is usually uh, opposed to subject, right? So subjectivity is opposed to objectivity, right? So when you say objectivity, it means things as they really are in the modern time, right? Uh, so something subjective is, you know, just my opinion, and something objective is how things really are, right? So uh, in the pre-modern uh, tradition, this is not how it is. It's actually quite different from that. The word sub subject or, uh, and the related word subjectivity and object and objectivity First of all, we're not opposed, right? They're not like opposed in, in the pre-modern time. They have a complementary meaning, right? They're connected, right? And not just as an opposition, but in another way as well. 
when they talked about subjectivity, they mean things that are independent, right? So the cat over there is a subjectivity, okay? It, it has an independent, uh, you can separate it from the dog and the chair and everything else, right? So that's what I mean by subjectivity, right? So subjectivity is primarily meant substances, right? And secondarily, they meant the accidents of those substances, right? Uh, insofar as the accidents are part of that subjectivity, okay? Uh, uh, kind of observable or a uh, uh, permanent part of that uh, substance, right? The opposite object meant something as known, something as known, right? The one, uh, the, the word, um, I think, objectere, uh, Sidi uh, Karim will know better, uh, this is from what I remember. Uh, uh, objectere means to lean against something, right? So like, like when you lean against a chair or something, right? So what does that mean? That means something in the world, as it leans against, uh, this is how it's meant, as it leans against an animal or a human animal, a human being, uh, so that it becomes known by that being, right? So when something affects us, leans against us, we get to know it, right? This is the kind of underlying insight of the meaning of this word, right? Um, so an object is something as known, an objectivity is, uh, uh, the objectivity refers to knowability and the world of knowledge. Okay, subjectivity talks is about independence and uh, that which is beyond the world of knowledge, right? Meaning beyond what I know about it, right? So that's the rough idea. Um, to say that uh, pre-modern philosophy was about was to do with the way of things is to say that they're about subjectivity primarily and also how they get to be known also objectivity but not thematized in the way that it was later so when they're talking about subjectivity they assume or they are you know basically what they are are they are realists right that we are actually able to know about these things these subjectivities um, um, and we, when we know them we know their essences right uh, which is i mean this is a discussion as to how we know essences and what is an essence and you know but this is just a very uh, brief account of it so he says here, let us realize at once that the essential notion of essence, so to put it, is simply that the real beings of the physical world have a subjective constitution or structure, which makes them be what and the way that they are. And that the essential notion of human intellectual knowledge, as distinguished from the sense perceptual knowledge, which we share with other animals, among the Latins is that we come to know the subjective or essential constitution as it obtains independently of our knowing it. So we really know something beyond its particular interest for us, beyond perception, as we talked about before, right? Um, and this is what our intellect allows us to do, right? As opposed to our, our uh, internal sensation or external sensation put together. Well, it did, of course, consider these things insofar as they are known. Um, um, uh, it's meaning the way of things, that is as objects, the nature of objectivity, uh, mental existence being one such name that uh, such as called, was not sufficiently thematized in the pre-modern times. So we're talking about you know, ancient Greece as well as you know, the medieval Europe and so on. Uh, it turns out that to really thematize and understand this mental something, one cannot only think in terms of things or subjectivity, but intersubjectivity. That is relations, and this is the theme of the whole thing, right? Relations, something not directly visible. So you can't point to it and say, oh, that's a relation, right? 
if you really think about it, yeah, you can't really say that's a relation that they, like your finger points to that something physical in the world, right? No, these are a different kind of things. So that is relation something not directly visible, hence not sense-based, that is not in but between things. Something that is actually already realized by Aristotle as actually existing out there uh, uh, as real relations, which is one mode of relation. Uh, but it wasn't further thematized, right? It wasn't, you know, analyzed in much more detail, uh, not only by Aristotle, but also people after him, as far as I know, as far as uh, Dili also says. Uh, our knowing of things, this creation of the world of knowledge is made possible by relations, not only real relations, by but also uh, rational relations. So this category, and it is a category in Aristotle's system of uh, real relations, which uh, the later folks also talk about in terms of uh, its other mode as rational relations, so not an end reality, not out there, but uh, as understood by us, right? I'll come into that a bit, bit later. This notion, this relation uh, becomes the bridge between this way of things and the way of signs. It's something that allows or accommodates uh, late scholastic philosophy, which is still based on the way of things to, um, uh, to anticipate a lot of the modern problems to do with knowledge and to provide a sort of solution to that, right? Uh, through the work of John Poinceau, but something that was not discovered until you know, many hundred years later. And of course, modern philosophy does not follow that, right? From Descartes onward. So you have the, this understanding of relation, which allows one to develop a proper understanding of how we come to know the mental philosophy uh, was already there in the 16, uh, 17th century, right? But it was not followed. Instead, the moderns developed their own way of doing this and ended up with you know, a lot of problems uh, in terms of skepticisms and so on. Once one realizes that we do have that solution back then uh, and can understand a lot of modern problems through that, you don't need modern philosophy because you can absorb what is proper about it into that late scholastic philosophy. Right? That's the idea. Right. So let's continue here. Um, so our knowing of things, this creation of the world of knowledge, right? the knowledge, world, world, uh, world of knowledge meaning that which is not out there, right? That is that which is not uh, 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 the world of things around us, but the world of knowledge. Right? It was re later realized that this essay ad, essay means uh, act or existence in, in a sense. Uh, th there's a whole discussion about that, but I'm not gonna go into it much. Essay ad means uh, a mode of uh, being that is towards another, okay? Um, this toward another nature, a better way to understand the being between that we talked about there, that characterizes relations means ultimately, ultimately means not at the time of Aquinas, who the main sort of character of uh, uh, medieval Catholic philosophy that daily followed, but only later thematized by Ponsoc, the, the, the Portuguese scholastic uh, scholar we're talking about. Uh, uh, this towards another nature means ultimately that they're not merely intersubjectivities. So it's not just about being between things, but somehow supervening on them. So it's not between two things, but above them, right? That they're super subjective. They supervene on top of subjects. Okay. Moreover, that the nature of thought of knowledge as kinds of being, so our knowledge of something is knowledge of a thing, right, let's say. But that knowledge itself is a kind of being as it is, quote unquote, in our mind. Uh, this no notion of inside and outside doesn't really work at the end, uh, but we'll, we might get a chance to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, 
in the, to the extent that they're in our mind, there's something in our mind, they're kind of being. Um, so moreover, that the nature of thoughts of knowledge as kinds of being is the following. Our ideas, concepts, mental representations as uh, of the nature of being patterned after something else, i.e. ends reality entities. Ends reality means the world of things outside us. This is an essay ad kind of being, a being towards another. So everything that we have in our minds, these kinds of being that we have inside, uh, I'm sorry for pointing to my head. This is not really, it's actually wrong to, to talk about it this way, but it's just, it's just easier, <laughs> even though it's not quite correct, right? So um, the things in my mind, these, you know, my un understanding of that cat, whatever it is, right? That is, what is that? Is that a substance? No. Is that an accident? No, right? Uh, it is a, a kind of being which is a being towards something, right? It's actually a relation, right? My thoughts are relations, right? That's the idea, okay? Um, so this is an essay ad kind of thing. Another name for which is that they're intentional beings. Their nature is to represent something other than themselves. To not be in themselves, but to reach away and reach beyond whatever is in their foundation or place. So the thought is in me, right? So I am the foundation or some faculty of mine is where this thought sits. But its nature is to not just sit and be by itself, just like the cat is out there being by itself. No. Its nature is to reach out, right? This is a kind of strange kind of being. This othering or other movement, you know, characterizing such beings uh, um, is actually important to understand, right? Uh, so that's what we're going to spend some little bit of time on below. These are beings in mind. There are, and this is really important to understand. These beings in mind, they'll be called different things. Uh, we're not going to go into detail of the differences between them. So they could be concepts, they could be objects, they could be uh, uh, species or species, which are not the same as the genus and species that we characterize things into, that classify things into, but a kind of intentional mental being, right? These beings are not inert things just sitting there, right? They're actually alive, they're in act, okay? Um, um, because all things, uh, according to Slavkovsky uh, and also to Aristotle, all things have their acts, their actuality. This is more brought out in the Scholastics than in, in Aristotle, uh, even though it's central to Aristotle, but it's thematized in a way uh, post-Aristotle, maybe, uh, I'm not sure if it starts with uh, Ibn Sina, but uh, in, in, in Aquinas, it's certainly there by that time. So all, being, all things have their acts, actuality, aliveness, right? All are beings at work saying this or that, right? Uh, and this is one of the, uh, uh, so when you're talking about form or formal cause, when you're talking about actuality, which is what the formal cause indicates, uh, the, the formal cause uh, uh, determines the actuality of the thing, right? Or the formal cause is the determination of the actuality of the thing, insofar as it, it is determined, right? Um, and there's a note uh, in one, I think, in the the guide as to, uh, I think, the, uh, Joey Sachs, uh, he does a translation of the physics of Aristotle. It has a good discussion at the start about the, these notions, right? Um, uh, but, but the point is, these are things in act, right? And they act to cause and direct our awareness. So these thoughts and types of things we have in mind, these essential, uh, these, these intentional beings, they're not just sitting there. They're working to do something, right? They're working to direct our attention. By attention, doesn't only mean like our eyes. We're not talking about eyes and stuff, right? That's sensei, that's, uh, sen um, those are our sense faculties, yes. But we also have internal sense faculties and we have the intellective faculty, other faculties that are always working to do something. 
And these are all imminent actions, meaning they're not transitive actions. They're not, they're not actions that produce something outside of themselves in the, in the way that, uh, you know, uh, I, I can, uh, you know, build something and produce like a table or something like that, right? I work to produce something. No, it's not, not in that same way. They don't create something other than themselves uh, as a different kind of being, right? But instead, they're working to create things that are uh, sort of uh, related to themselves. It's kind of imminent, uh, imminent kind of movement, right? Uh, there's a lot more to say about that. Uh, it goes much more into the platonic realm. Uh, Sidi Hassan was talking about, uh, I think, in his work uh, before, when he was reading the, the Nas al-Amr uh, book. Uh, so there's a lot more to say about that. But this is only at this, the individual soul level we're talking about, not in the level of the intellect. Although obviously there is a similarity because there's a similarity in the types of things that there are in not being material things. Okay. Um, so the uh, direct imminent activities of our soul uh, uh, in its different parts, whether we are conscious of it or not. This is where signs come in. Signs are a kind of relation. Uh, signs are not the only kind of relation. Uh, you can have the cause effect relation. So if somebody hits somebody else, right? Um, that's one subject and that's another subject. The two independent things. But this is in addition to that, this is also a cause of that. And there is actually a relation between them as a result. This relation that's between them is really there. It's invisible, right? Like if my hand hit the other hand, like imagine these are two different things. Uh, all you're left with is a bit of pain on this hand and a bit of pain on that hand. And maybe this hand is red and the other one is less red or something, right? Uh, but what I'm talking about there are still the subjectivities, right? the, the properties of the thing. Right? But this relation is something additional to that. It really exists uh, in the world as a real relation. Right? Uh, and it's, it, it is beyond the accidental effect. Right? It's beyond the redness here and the redness there. That's not the relation. Right? That, those are only parts of the relation. The relation itself goes beyond that. Right? There's something else in addition to the accidental changes in each one. Okay, that's what makes it super subjective beyond these two subjects. Okay, and this is a part that is actually it's something uh, that, that is the most, I mean, it, it's crucial to uh, uh, lit classic philosophy and Dili's philosophy, but it's also one of the most subtle things, right? Um, one thing I can say about it, uh, one more thing I can say about it to make it seem more real and not just something that we're imagining, right? Uh, uh, well, um, I mean, one of the, I mean, there's many examples in, in the readings that I, uh, that I posted, right? But one is, okay, you have, let's say you have a, you know, um, uh, yeah, like a bunch of furniture in front of you, right? You've got the sofa over here, you've got the chairs over there, you've got, I've got a ladder here for some reason, I've got a light and, you know, other things, right? Um, if I go and change the furniture around, if I put the sofa over there, the chair over there, and, you know, put the ladder over there, I have not changed the subjectivities. I've not changed the things. The things are still as they are. Right, I've changed the relations of those things to other to, to each other. Right now, you wouldn't you wouldn't say that the two situations are the same. There's a big difference, right? Like if the sofa is over there, it's a different uh, it's a different room, you know. Uh, you know, so there's big changes here, right? Um, yet that change is not um, is not really captured by talking about the subjectivity, right? It's only captured by talking about the relations of the subjectivities, i.e., their intersubjective, uh, uh, intersubjective nature, right, or the supersubjective uh, relations that are between them, right. 
Um, so that's it's a bit more about what relations are. That that itself is not going to be convincing of uh, relations being real, right? Uh, that requires more discussion, but uh, let's move on from there. Okay. Uh, this was understood by the end of late, the late scholastic period by Ponso and uh, was only when Peirce came into the scene that things were developed from there on. Uh, that, sorry, things not as uh, philosophical things, just you know, the philosophy was uh, developed from there, uh, there on, right? Um, uh, oh, sorry, I, I missed this uh, thing out. Let me continue from there. So the intentional beings known as concepts, so one type of intentional being is the concept, okay? Uh, are a kind of sign. It is by means of such beings in us that our particular connection to nature is affected. Very important line, actually. So um, it is because we have these special kind of beings, which are relational beings that constitute our thoughts, right? Uh, that we're able to know the world in the first place, that we're able to know anything, okay? These intentional beings are not just sitting there by themselves, they're acting. And their act, the nature of their acting is to provenate relations, is to go beyond themselves to something else. Right. Okay. We'll get more into this. Uh, sorry for the child. <laughs> uh, uh, so this is understood by the end of the late classic. Uh, this idea of uh, uh, intentional beings and concepts as being signs which point to other than themselves. Um, uh, so when Peirce came into the scene, and Peirce developed a lot of his ideas from uh, scholastic, right? Uh, and uh, unless you know the scholastic to some extent, it's difficult to actually contextualize and understand Peirce. Same with Heidegger, by the way, right? Both closely followed the uh, scholastic. Heidegger followed the modiste, the uh, um, modist, uh, a, a school of uh, scholastic philosophers that worked on signification. Um, so these guys, person, first uh, especially, uh, is seen by Dili as uh, being one of the first postmodern philosopher, and in particular, that person following the way of science that he's talking about. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to quickly finish this part. Um, I think we already talked about this. Uh, yeah. Yes. So objectivity, uh, we talked about subjectivity a lot, and we did talk about objectivity a little bit, but let's summarize it. Objectivity is precisely the existence of anything real or unreal as known. By contrast, subjectivity is the existence of anything as having an individual identity separated from other individuals and independently of being object, uh, separate from other individuals and independently of being objectified or apprehended. So super subjectivity or the being proper to relations, mind dependent or mind independent, so two kinds of relations, uh, mind, mind dependent or rational relations. So something that is not, uh, not only, uh, you know, not relations out there only, but there, there's something that has to be imagined or require us to think about it for them to exist. And they exist only objectively, right? Not, not out there. Okay. Uh, is that mode of existence dependent upon subjectivity, but contrasting to it as what links one thing to another contrasts with what separates one thing from another? This linkage may spring from psychological or from a physical nature or both. But only reason that is human understanding can recognize the difference between relation as such and the subjective fundamental or ground of that relation, meaning the, meaning the provenate from us, right? From my, uh, from my uh, 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 cognition. As also between relations provenating here from physical and there from psychological subjectivity. It is this last distinctiveness of reason that warrants the otherwise unwarrantable traditional designation of mind-dependent relations as entia rationis, right? 
rational entities, that, uh, rational things. Uh, okay, so this is from semiotic animal. Objectivity, we may go, go so far as to say, insofar as it involves sensation at least. So when we come to know things, sensation is involved in knowing those things, insofar as we're looking at things in the world and knowing them. Is the partial internalization, so this is the thing, is the partial internalization within my subjectivity of the subjectivity that surround me and exist independently of my awareness. This partial internalization is precisely what founds my relations to my surroundings. These relations to my surroundings in turn transform mere things, the cat, the cup, the, you know, the sofa, into objects of my concern or disdain. Oh, I should you know, run away from it or go towards it. That's a plus minus again, right? Um, and these objects, so that's the thing as known, so something in me, right? These objects transcend mere things to constitute an objective world in principle distinct from the irreducible in its objectivity to the world of things as physical and given at once prejacently to and concurrently with my awareness of that world of physical subjectivity and intersubjectivities as included partially within, though far from exhausting, my horizon of concerns. So there's a name for this. this um, the human being is constituted, uh, or it has, um, or it, uh, and we'll come to this later, is we actually live in something called, we live in worlds, okay? So one of the worlds that we live in, or part of the overall world we live in, by world, you might think Earth. No, we're not talking about, if you're talking about Earth, you're talking about the uh, world ends reality, like in terms of things out there, right? Here, when they mean world, uh, it is not something that is only uh, out there, beyond myself, beyond ourselves, but it's something that is a combination, a, a connection uh, of uh, or between that which is a thing or that which is out there and that which is also a thought or a concept or an object. Right, in this case, something that is as known, right? So the world here is this connection of the two things, right? Uh, Wumwelt, uh, German word uh, uh, from uh, uh, famous theoretic, uh, developed by a uh, theoretical biologist, uh, I think in the uh, late 19th, uh, sorry, late 20th century or so, uh, is something that uh, Didi makes use of a lot, as well as Heidegger and uh, others. Uh, but they, they give it, Didi gives it a different meaning. Right from the theoretical biologist, right? But it's similar, but there's a difference to it. This Wumwelt is something that is uh, uh, not a world of things out there, is actually a set of relations. It's like a, a, a network of relations relating between psychological states in me, right? Things in me which are private to me, my inner world or in and wealth, right? Uh, two things that are potentially beyond me, right? existing beyond me, right? That cat over there, that dog over there, that bridge and so on, right? Because uh, is this network of relations that I actually live in. What does it mean to live in it? Uh, means that the, the nodes in that uh, relational structure, that network are things that are the uh, things that my faculties are constantly uh, uh, um, traversing, right? They're reading into these nodes. They're kind of uh, eating these nodes or something, right? They, they, they're going into each, each of these nodes. A node could be, uh, uh, you know, the, the something that points to something beyond me, but to the extent that I that it is of interest to me. So it's not just a cat by itself that I'm knowing, right? It's a cat by itself and my interest of it transposed together. 
like supervening on top of each other, right? And my faculties, my internal, my uh, internal sensation, my intellection, like these, these different faculties are constantly perusing, um, perusing these things, right? Reading into these things, following these things. When I say following, these nodes are actually signs, right? The nature of a sign is to lead you from itself to something else, right? So my faculties are like traveling. They're going from here to there, to there, to there, to right? This kind of, and this is their act. This is them being as they are in their act, right? So this is what's kind of happening. There's a lot more detail to go into there, but uh, I'm not gonna go there right now. Um, it's just a kind of initial uh, thing. Okay, uh, so what I'm gonna do very quickly, uh, please, if, if there's any questions, please, uh, I know there's a lot of uh, concepts here, uh, so please uh, let me know. Um, if if uh, people can see this diagram. Can everybody see this diagram? Yep, I guess so, right. Okay. So this is the, um, uh, when we're talking about the way of things that, uh, and we talked about Andriale, which is the, the world of things, right? Um, this is the world that Aristotle talked about in his categories. This is what he categorized in his categories, right? Um, so his categories refer to not things as they're known only, but things as they really are, like beyond our knowing of them, okay? Um, now, Dili, and this is from his purely objective reality, has several diagrams that are very instructive. Um, and they, they summarize Aristotle, but they do it in a way that is um, uh, that shows you the links between uh, the categories as they're understood in Aristotle's time and then the medieval time and late, late scholastic period. And we're going to really quickly go over uh, some of these, um, um, the way Dili talked about it, because it's useful to our overall uh, understanding of, um, you know, what, what sort of, um, what was missing in that time. Right? Um, that uh, Dili and others, uh, late scholastic specifically, try to um, uh, fill the gap for, right? What they kind of sort out. So the categories are an account of nature, okay? Uh, nature they call the physics or physics. And um, uh, the world of nature in, in the medieval uh, Latin context is also called Andriale, real being. Uh, but uh, that's what, uh, now Andriale, is not, um, there's different understandings of what it is, but this is the general account. Um, and Andriale is the scope of Aristotle's categories, right? So, you know, the substance, all the different kind of accidents can actually be uh, made into three, uh, put into three types here, okay? Three things. So you've got uh, being in itself, that this is a kind of being that is, um, independence, right? It doesn't depend on other things to be there. Being in another, which is another name for accident. So accidents are a type of being in another, or they're the only type of being which are being in another. And the third type, which Aristotle also realized, but he didn't categorize, he didn't like typologize it this way, right? Even though you can sort of extract that from his work, is being towards another, right? Which is the type of being a relation has. Okay. This notion of essay here is important. Um, uh, so essay means, uh, uh, so when you say ends, which just means being, you could talk, when you say uh, this, this being or that being, uh, or this ends or that ends, uh, that doesn't specify the mode of its existence, right? Do you mean something that's existing mentally? Do you mean something that is existing beyond end reality? Do you mean something that's existing in this mode or that mode? 
just ends by itself doesn't really tell us that. For that, you have to go to the essay, right? If you say, oh, this being, I'll ask you, what is the essay of it, right? How does it really exist? Oh, it exists uh, independently of my mind, okay. So does it exist by itself, like as a substance? Yes, yes it exists essay in say, right? Or does it exist as part of a substance? Yes, it does. So it exists as dependent on that substance, so it's an accident, right? And so on, right? So this is basically, uh, I mean, a lot of his categories, when he, you know, there's categories that are talking about um, a substance having something or being affected by something, all these other kind of things. All of these other ones beyond your basic accidents and substance itself are all relations, right? So the majority of the categories are actually here, okay? Right? In terms of numbers, right? They're actually here. An accident, quantitative and qualitative, are here. And the substance itself is here, right? And hence, your, this is your categories, right? Uh, so this is what we have at the end with Aristotle. Um, then things change. And what I'm trying to get to is the thematization of relation, right? Which Aristotle already did, right? He, and if you don't thematize relation, you can't really understand mental existence properly. This is the point, right? So here is Aristotle on the left. Sorry for all these other windows. Um, hopefully this is uh, kind of visible, right? So here's our stuff on the left, and here's what happens after Aquinas, right? Um, so what you have is same stuff as, as here. You've got you know the category is divided into three things: uh, uh, being in itself, which is substance, uh, accidents, and relation, right here. But what, what you also have, and this relation here is actually a real real relation, right? Like something that really exists beyond our knowing of it. But what you really have, what, what you have here with Aquinas, post Aquinas is rational relations, right? Relations as they're, uh, uh, that can only be known or they're only objective, right? They don't actually exist out there, okay? Um, and these are something that, you know, this is the slow thematization of relations in helping one understand the nature of mental existence, okay? So all this stuff is, you know, just here. This stuff on top is the new stuff. Um, so there's a, a, now this notion of a relation. It, it's a type of being, right? It's a type of it's a type of being, and it's the kind of being that exists as an essay ad, right? Its act, its mode of existence, is uh, towards something else mode, right? Like, I mean, it, it's kind of silly to visualize it like this. It's like you know somebody going in for a hug, right? It's, instead of somebody staying still, that kind of thing, right? Uh, so that's the nature of um, thought, right? They're like this, okay? Um, and they can be divided into several other things. They can be thoughts, uh, so rational relations, um, uh, are, so relations in general are, are, are types of beings our thoughts are. Um, and these thoughts or these uh, intentional beings are patterned after things in uh, real life or ends reale. So they're patterned after these things. And they can be patterned after uh, things in themselves, the substance is an accident, or they can be patterned after real relations, right? Which are uh, these guys. Because all of this is ends reale, right? So our thoughts can be patterned after these things, which are in themselves or subjectivity, or toward another's, okay? 
So here we have, uh, there's no reason to go too much into detail on this, but the, here the, the point is just that as we get to Aquinas and you know, medieval philosophy, they have a way to understand the nature of the mind and mental existence, right? But it's yet not quite perfect, right? Um, this, big, this is a really important part here. So this, is, this comes into uh, medieval philosophy through Avicenna. Uh, so this is Enstrema with Cognitum. This is being as first cognized, right? Our first, this is the first thing that is known by us. On top of which all other knowledge builds, right? And that thing which is first known by us is a notion of being, right? Which kind of being, which one, which one of these, right? Uh, none, in a sense, right? There's, it's none. It's a different kind of being. From which it, it's a kind of like a, 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 a kind of um, uh, undifferentiated uh, kind of being, which is then further differentiated uh, as we build on that basic knowledge of being. Right? Uh, we'll come to this uh, a bit later. So this is the big change, right? So next, what we have is this is you know. Uh, Mid-scholasticism, uh, you can say, uh, from Catholic philosophy based on Aquinas. Then this is late scholasticism. So if I can show this, just want to show you what the difference is. That this, this is a post 16. Well, he does in 1644. This is Ponto. Uh, not sure if this is. Yeah, there you go. Um, so the idea here is uh, just to kind of summarize on the left. Uh, these are all the beings in, uh, beyond us, right? Um, um, these are all the types of beings that exist. Uh, this is the stuff beyond us as Aristotle already discovered. This is the additional stuff that comes that gets thematized in, in uh, medieval philosophy. And it used to talk about the kind of beings thoughts are, right? This is the th this notion of ens primum is the kind of proto or the first thought that we have, based on which all other thoughts. All other knowledge is differentiated, right? When you get to Ponto, you have you know the same things again, okay? But he further discusses the nature of these um, thoughts, like what kind of thoughts there can be, uh, and as a result, what kind of beings there can be. There can be mind-dependent beings, so beings dependent on our uh, adding something to something out there, adding uh, uh, concepts to something out there, and beings not dependent on that. Um, and the bottom stuff is basically the same, okay? And this other change is that he realizes that this being towards another is not just about uh, something between two things. It's, it's about something that supervenes on the thing. It goes beyond the subjects, right? So this is the discovery of Ponto, as far as I know. Um, and finally, the other point here is that all of this is what we call ens reale, as before. This is the Aristotelian stuff on the bottom. Uh, all the stuff on top uh, is what is socially constructed, right? Uh, this is not in the meaning in the modern sense, uh, you know, in a kind of absolute, like everything is socially constructed. It's not about that at all. So what are, what are these kind of things? So everything that's a fictional entity that we can talk about, right? Uh, when we talk about a judge, right? We say, okay, this guy is a judge, right? Is there something in sense reality that makes him a judge? No, right? Um, like there are, there are cultures and you know, people that don't have this notion of a judge, right? So it's a notion, it's an idea, right? When I look at somebody and they talk a particular way, they behave with people in a particular way, I say, oh, that's a judge or that's a policeman or whatever, right? So that, that 
entity, that person, insofar as he is a judge, is not something of, is not an entity of ends reality. You can't describe him just with, with the categories, right? You need something more than that, right? And that's all this stuff, right? Um, so you need to talk about relations, right? Concepts, which are type of relations. Um, and how certain concepts in me shared with you and shared with my community allow us to all produce language and allow us to then deem that person as a judge, right? So the, his judgment is not a mind-independent reality. It's a mind-dependent reality, right? If human beings did not know him as a judge and construct this idea of judgeship, uh, judgeship would not exist, right? Uh, in ends reality, okay? So that's, uh, so, uh, after point so we have a way to talk about all this. And by the way, like, um, uh, as I was talking to Sidi Mustafa about, uh, a lot of what we call, uh, and, and this is in uh, Sidi Hassan's paper, of course, as well, right? Uh, when you're talking about Mustalahat, when you're talking about, um, you know, perspectivals and all that stuff, you're talking about this, right? That's where you're at, okay? Um, and we shall stop with that there and go to the next uh, section. Uh, any, any questions about that? Any any points about that? Okay. Um, okay. So let's go to the next one. Uh, I'm trying to make sure that I <laughs> I won't have enough time to complete this, but uh, I'll try to go through this as quickly as possible. The next section. If if something is confusing, please let me know because uh, otherwise it will be a uh, I'll be uh, adding to the confusion. Uh, okay. So that's, so now we know about the world of things. We know where Aristotle was. We know the kind of development in the medieval period uh, where they talked about the, the kinds of beings that thoughts are. So they really did explore the mind and mental existence to some degree and added two Aristotle's categories to explain what kind of beings they are in addition to and real beings, right? Okay. So now what? Now through that, you get a much better understanding of what the human being is, right? Um, uh, because you're considering the world of knowledge is objective world, okay? So it says here, ens reale, the world of things is not the same for all organisms, right? So the way the world looks for a cat is not the same way the world looks for a human being or a bee. The differences between organisms mean that aspects of the world are filtered due to the interests and sensibilities of those organisms. So when I look at a wolf, I should probably be scared of the wolf, but let's say I'm not, right? Let's say I'm like a hunter or something. Uh, obviously, the, you know, the, the way I react to the wolf will be different from the sheep, right? If I'm a hunter, right? Uh, on top of that, I have different sense. My, my eyes are different from the sheep of the eyes, right? My, my external senses are different, right? The bee can pick up certain things that my ears cannot. It can hear things I cannot. I can hear things that it cannot. I, I, I guess, I don't know. I don't know anything about biology, right? So our physical, the physical constitution of our senses filter which aspect of reality come into us in the first place. So the filtering here is not simply physical in the biological nature, like you said, um, indifferent from some other animal uh, because we don't have the same range such as hearing, but also that beyond the limits of external sensation, there is a conditioning at the level of internal sensation. So this is the plus minus and zero. So what is produced upon this lateral conditioning are objects. 
So uh, sense object, uh, um, the word object is not quite right there. So uh, uh, the output of our external sensation goes into the internal senses faculty, right? And when I say coming out and going in, it, there's a kind of modern cognitive science kind of uh, implication here, which is not how it is. Uh, so this is only accidental the way, because it sounds this way. It, it's not like a machine, it's not a computer, right? Okay, but that seems to be the easiest way to explain it initially. Right? So there's something, our external senses, our eyes, our ears and nose and everything. So all that outputs something, okay? Output, input, sorry about that. It outputs something and that goes into your internal sense faculties and internal sense faculties add the plus minus or zero. And they do much more than that, but that's mainly what they do. Um, so things are what, um, oh, where are we? No. So th this is the conditioning, right? This is what the internal sense faculty do. So when animal perception, internal sense faculties, ultimately to the waham or estimatio, ultimately meaning that's at the top of the other sense, uh, internal senses, they take the output of the others and sort of make a, uh, make a final judgment, uh, work on those to produce something else. Um, so animal perceptions add the plus, minus, and zero to what is sensed. Um, there is, in addition to this, human animal, uh, what we have is in addition to other animals. Right? Um, and there is, and what that is, is that we, we create something called objects, right? So, uh, um, which are a kind of rational beings, which are something in addition to subjectivities, right? Uh, so this is what you're talking about before. So this, these other things get created in us as human beings, which, um, which actually they do in animals, but the way they're used are different. So we, we actually recognize objects as objects, right? So we realize, oh, you know, uh, there is, not only there's a wolf, but uh, I, that I know that there is a wolf, right? So, not only, so what, what, what happens with animals is that there's a wolf, right? And they react to the wolf, right? They don't, uh, they don't separate the wolf as being out there from it being in them as, a, 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 as something that is known. They don't do that separation, right? They, so the, the world for them is, according to uh, Dili and, 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 and uh, these thinkers, is it, a kind of meshed up world, right? Ends reality and ends objectivism. The, the, the world that's known are kind of like, like this, right? Whereas we were able to separate that. Okay, so what is added to us, what we have in addition to animals is the ability to separate the two worlds, the world that's known, the world that's out there, irrespective of it being known. Okay, and so what actually affects that is the point at which we can understand that, uh, the point at which our sensation, the uh, external leading to internal, leading to intellection, produces in us a relation, a particular kind of relation of this object, which is the output of uh, 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 sensation as well as uh, uh, sense perception or uh, internal sensation. And it produces a relation between that and ourselves. So we know that it is us, this is my knowledge, right? This is my knowledge. This not, is distinguished as my knowledge from it being out there. It can also be out there as well, right? But I know it as my knowledge, right? So this is what is specifically human um, in, in the faculties, right? Specifically relation that's created in humans. Um, and we talked about the umwelt before, just briefly. So what is it now? Because the umwelt is a, a world that we live in uh, and all animals live in, right? And it consists of a bunch of relations connected to each other, right? 
So the warm world is not only aspects of the environment access to sensation, but a networking together of those aspects of ends reality as they impress upon our senses, being filtered according to you know, the nature of my eyes versus the eyes of the bee. Um, and uh, as they are collated, related amongst each other to form stabilities, and then transformed into plus minus zero objects, according to the interest of the animal. This B here, right? So I, I might observe, uh, you know, the, the redness of uh, a car or something, right? Um, and that impresses upon my senses, right? You know, because of the photons going in and uh, going in a particular way onto my eye and so on and so on, right? So that's the impressing onto the senses. And my eye is not the only aspect of my uh, external sense faculty of sight, obviously, that's just a part of it. So there's this impression on, impression on my senses, but then it, there's a bunch of uh, relations that are also created in me, right? So it's not just the redness of the car that is in me, it's the redness of the car in distinction to the redness of that car and the redness of that bike and the height of, uh, or the extension or the shape of that car, right? So it's each of these things impressing upon me in relation to each other that creates this big relational network, okay? And from stabilities, right? So uh, the redness of the car, the height of it, the size of it, the, that there are wheels, all of these things uh, are, are, are something that stay with the car as it moves along, right? It forms a stability. So these are something that come into me, right? All these complex relations. And on top of that, my interest in that car plus minus zero, right? So all, all additional relations are created as a result. And this is the umwalt. Right? So it's a rich relational network that is constantly traversed by our animal awareness. Um, now, what does that mean? So um, for animals, not just humans, uh, when the umwelt is formed, it is the basis on, uh, in, uh, through which the animal moves, right? So as the umwelt is formed, the, the, the sheep can run away from the wolf, right? Because it knows the wolf is over there, right? In relation to it, it's over there. And it's next to the tree, right? So it's not going to run into the tree. It's going to run left of the tree or right of the tree, right? So all, the, the fact that it can do all this means that it must understand what is out there to the extent that it creates a womb wealth which reflects that external world, right? In relations and subjectivities, right? Without knowing them as subjectivities, right? Okay. Beyond this level for humans, we have um, the um, understanding, okay? Uh, which distinguishes between objects so the world is known to me versus the world of things. Um, when we understand things, and this is when you understand things in their own respect, which is what we talked about at the start, irrespective of our interests. This further stage adds further layers to the animal umwelt, right? So the animal umwelt does not define the world we live in. That's only part of it. So when we bring in our intellective faculty and what it gives us, what it gives us is this understanding of something, the, the other things, irrespective of how we are, right? The ability to understand essences, right? As we said above, right? So what, what does that do? That simply adds to that complex network of things, okay? Uh, of concepts and objects and all this stuff, right? And that as a whole is called the Levin's world, or life world, right? Uh, this is the notion of course used in phenomenology and other, not just phenomenology, many other traditions. Uh, but uh, here what is meant is not necessarily the same as there. So it is this Levin's world that we live in that constitutes human experience, and it is itself constituted by mind-dependent and mind-independent objects. So 
in, in this world, we have uh, uh, this world is constituted by objects and concepts that relate outward to things in the real world, like that cat, as it is right now, but it also relates to imaginary things, right? It relates to, uh, and also relates to things that are mixed, like my friend, the judge, is sitting in front of me, right? He is real as a, as a human substance, but he is not, not real as a judge, <laughs> meaning he's not an ends reality object insofar he is a judge. But that is a very, you know, his judgeship is a mind-dependent reality. It is a reality. Uh, you know, because he can he can say you know go to jail and it actually works. But yeah, you know he can affect that, right? So it's very real, right? Even though it's a mind dependent reality. Um, beyond this, beyond this uh, Lebensweg, which is the Umwelt of the human being, there is this Innenwelt, which is also constitutive of the human being. The Innenwelt, this is the this is subjectivity as understood in the modern sense, right? When I say oh that is just subjective, it's only in your mind. We are talking about the inner world of you, right? So that's the in and mode. So these are our concepts, psychological states, etc. Insofar as they uh, uh, are subject, to, insofar as they are part of us and not publicly accessible, right? Like they're not, uh, they don't necessarily point outward, and they don't necessarily, um, uh, they're not necessarily things that are shown to people, right? Obvious to people, okay, beyond ourselves. Of course, we can put them into words. I feel this way or that way, and then they are known to us, known to other people. But that's another that's language formation. That's a different thing. Um, the umwelt is what connects this, meaning this, meaning this inner world to the ends reality, right? A psychological state like fear to something other, right? So uh, how do you know I fear the wolf? Because you see me move, you see me run away from it, right? So that, then you know, oh, this guy, you know, his inner world is uh, includes the subjective state of fear, right? Psychological state of fear. The objects of the umwelt are relational entities, as we said, supervening on our cognitive faculties. Uh, they're of the nature of, of essay ad as a result, as we saw in the diagram. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm not going to this just for the sake of time. Uh, actually, maybe um, uh, this. Okay. The objective presence of uh, rational entities in the experience of cognitive organism. So, objective presence meaning as known, right? So, rational entities meaning uh, things in my mind, right? In the experience of cognitive, organi cognitive organisms is not an optional but a necessary one in order for the bare physical surroundings to become meaningful or to be a world, an umwelt, in which the organism has its central place. In other words, beings of reason are formed and function wherever there are in nature cognitive organisms that need to orient themselves within their surroundings in order to survive and to thrive. Right? So it's not just for human beings that there's an objective world for animals. Right? Thus, relations of reason, so-called, are in fact found wherever cognitive organisms are found, active as cognitive within the physical universe. They're not only objective relations, they are purely objective relations. Right? Uh, now, uh, as you said, like, you know, the, if you have the predator, uh, so the sheep judges that, you know, the, the predator is this much left or this much to the right. So it actually, must have a representation of that world inside it, including the relation. Right? It doesn't just know wolf and tree in its own way. It knows wolf as this much to the left of the tree, or this much this way or that way. Right? So it only already it also has a representation of the relation as well. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. I'm going to skip all this because I think uh, we have covered it. Uh, 
Okay. What is particular to the human being that's different from animal uh, in how it knows things, in the things it can know, is that um, whereas every animal, including human animals, um, have the ability to follow signs, right? Another name for which is that they're semi-osmic, uh, semi right? Um, so when you, when you whistle to the dog, it knows like, you know, if you train it, right, it knows that the whistle means go and run and get, you know, uh, run and capture the ball or something, right? It knows that, but it doesn't know, and this is what differentiates us from them, it doesn't know um, a sign as a sign, as to what the nature of a sign is. You know, not, not that it cannot talk about it, that's a separate thing, but it actually can't distinguish a sign as um, uh, something that is uh, in addition uh, to the thing that it is, that it is uh, signing from, right? So, um, uh, uh, so for example, you know, you can teach it like the whistle, the whistling itself. That's a separate kind of thing, a separate kind of being than what that leads to, which is running and you know, running and capturing the ball, right? They're two kind of separate things. But those, that separation, they're not able to do, right? For them, it's one thing. Whistle means run, or whistle means that, right? But the whistling are separate from the uh, position of the whistle as a sign towards something else. That is not. That is only a human thing, right? So now human beings are semiotic animals precisely because they're the only animals capable of using signs as to be aware that they're signs, which means to recognize that the material objects like the stop sign we perceive as signs are such not by reason of their subjective constitution, but only by reason of their involvement in a triadic relation, which is not, we, we're not gonna go into it, but basically you have, you've got the, uh, what's called the sign vehicle, the stop sign, interpretant, who's the person interpreting that stop sign, and the signified is what the sign points to, which means stop your car, right? Um, the, the only people that are able to uh, reason uh, about this, understand this triadic relation are standing in the foreground position of representing something other than themselves, something that they themselves are not. The semiosmic sign-following animal, there is no other kind, need not perceive, but the semiotic animal must need to be able to grasp by understanding the difference between related subjectivities and the relations themselves as realities over and above those perceived subjectivities related, even though directly imperceptible as such. Um, uh, I'm not gonna explain why there's exclamation marks, that's a bigger discussion. By reason of such an intellectual awareness, uh, directly of the imperceptible being of relations then, the semiotic animal can in turn take these relations themselves and not merely take the perceptibly related things as models or foundations for the formulation in, uh, in the wells in their inner life, albeit other relations, as it were, for relations founded upon relations. Something impossible in the order of ends reale in its contrast with ends rationis, in the order of physical being as contrasted with objective being, even as including something of physical being, something that cannot occur in the order of subjectivities and intersubjectivities as mind independent, but only within the order of mind dependent being itself as suprasubjective necessarily, while intersubjective only contingently. Uh, this last bit means that we can think of something. I can, uh, uh, let's say yesterday my car went uh, over a bridge. So now I'm, I'm driving my car and I'm thinking, okay, there's that bridge, right? Okay. So uh, the notion of bridge being there, uh, uh, you know, is actually like, because I already know about it, right? That 
knowledge as I'm uh, knowing and thinking about it is a mind dependent something, right? But it might also be, uh, it might also be uh, like, let's say the bridge is broken now. I don't know about it, right? Let's say there's like a, I don't know, like earthquake or something and the bridge is broken, right? So that means uh, that knowledge of the bridge I have, whereas previously there was a relation between my knowledge of it and it, right? But that relation no longer exists, which means that relation is now only uh, 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 rational. It is not also, uh, um, uh, it, it is not between two subjects, myself the subject and the bridge the subject, right? It's no longer an intersubjective relation, right? Uh, however, it, it is and always has been super subjective, meaning the relation is always something supervening on me. It's not actually, uh, uh, you know, it, it's not only accident, an accident in me, its foundation is not only an accident, but supervening, right? It's super subjective. Um, why is this relevant? Because without signs, you know, you realize everything is about signs, right? The stop sign, the person as a judge, uh, so his moving in a particular way signals to me that he's a judge, right? Signals to you and me and everyone, right? The signs are profuse, right? That they're, uh, human beings uh, function uh, by thinking and uh, cognizing these signs, right? That's the nature of our day-to-day -day living. Our Umwelt or Lebenswelt is completely full of these signs. That's what it means to live in, live in our world, human world, right? Is to live in the Lebenswelt, right? It's full of signs, right? Um, if you didn't have these signs, we just couldn't do anything. It just, it's just not a human, you couldn't live, right? Um, without these signs, without these mind-dependent uh, things that we create, there's no culture, right? Because uh, culture is not in the you know, categories of uh, Aristotle, right? It's not in the ends reality, right? These are mind-dependent realities. And indeed, no philosophy, no mustalahat, no sciences, you know, none of that. Okay. So that's the significance of science. Uh, oh. oh, okay. Uh, right. Uh, okay. Is everybody uh, ready for the last section? It's about what's different with modernity, Descartes onwards, right? And we already talked about it a little bit, but it's to make it a bit more uh, solid. Uh, is there any questions, any, any, any points you want to raise uh, before we go into that? Modernity is called the way of ideas, which is different from science. Any, any, uh, nope, okay, bismillah. So this is, I'm going to just start with the kind of with the main uh, thing. Um, from Descartes onwards, what you have, because Descartes didn't, you know, his uh, training in scholasticism was very poor. Right? Funnily enough, uh, so he studied in France, the syllabus that he studies was a Jesuit uh, scholastic syllabus uh, created by the Colimbri census, the Portuguese uh, school of, uh, Portuguese uh, scholastic school, right? Um, whose works, by the way, are still being translated and collected and edited, right? So we, don't, we don't actually, actually don't know much about it, right? There's still very little that we know about it. I think just like four or five years ago, uh, the University of Coimbra or Coimbra, I'm not, how to say, I'm not sure how to say it. So these are, you know, the, the Portuguese university, they started, you know, editing and translating these works, right? You know, just five, six years ago, right? So yeah, we actually don't know late classicism, just like we don't know so much about uh, late, uh, you know, late medieval or late uh, Islamic uh, tradition, you know. So it's the same with the same with the scholastics, right? So Descartes didn't get educated properly in uh, all this stuff that we talked about, you know, uh, the uh, uh, late scholastic understanding of categories and you know, notion of ideas, all this stuff. 
uh, signs. He, he didn't he didn't go into any of that, right? Um, and so he didn't know this latest work, so he couldn't use it to form his own philosophy, right? So he he was interested in trading a lot of the sim similar grounds about mental philosophy, how to understand the mind, but he didn't have these tools to go and do that with. And at the same time, he was very, you know, uh, obviously, ideoscopic sciences were really up there. So people focused on that. So it, it just, the whole thing got messed up. Okay, so here we go. Um, what, what the main mess up though in, in Descartes is that when he tries to understand the mind, he understands those things and the, the concepts and ideas and whatever you call uh, mental entities, he understands them not as essay ad, not as, uh, not in their nature as pointing out, right? But instead, just like subjectivities, right? Like the cat and the dog, they're, they're just, they're stability in themselves. That's their nature, the being in, right? Being in themselves or being in another, like substances or accidents, right? His concepts are like that, which means they're self-representational. They're not other representational. And what happens there is you get, as a result of that, you get stuck in the mind, right? Right? And the details of that we're gonna do now, right? Uh, are we, uh, is it been a, okay, so we're, are we, we're coming towards the end, right? Uh, I don't know if I should finish this or uh, uh, the uh, Hassan can tell me if I should finish this section or maybe open for questions. It's entirely up to you, Maulana. Um, I mean, I think that there is merit in trying to stay within the time as much as possible, just because, uh, you know, in case people have set aside a certain amount of time but if you feel that it's really necessary to um to to to, to make the the, the to, to to illustrate the conclusion then then please go ahead okay just about two pages right okay so let, let, let's go for this right um so what is this uh, what is particular about uh modern philosophy descartes onwards is that it's called the way of, well, Dili calls it the way of ideas as opposed to the way of signs. Signs point outwards, uh, ideas don't necessarily, um, in the way understood by Descartes, they're self-representational, not other representational. That already gives you an idea of what, you know, what, what's wrong. But let's go into it in a bit more detail. So the way of ideas is based on understanding that the beginnings of thought, my thought, your thought, uh, from the, the time of childhood, right? So we're talking about, um, you know, in terms of time, right? So the beginnings of thought, our most initial ideas on which uh, the rest are founded, have to do with self-knowledge. This is Descartes' idea, right? Or the way of ideas, how they look at it. So the first thought I have is thought about myself. I am me and whatever, right? In a way that is distinct and separate from other knowledge. Other knowledge meaning that which is outside of me, this cat, that cat, my room, whatever, the world, so the way of idea starts with this uh, something which medieval thought doesn't, which is that my first knowledge is about me, right? Whereas for the medieval, the first knowledge is initially about other than me, as well as me, right? Or other than me on top of which me is built, right? So that's basically the main idea. So let's follow in, follow through with that. Uh, this is what pre-moderns and post-moderns challenge, meaning the medievals and also Charles Peirce onward. Uh, and Dili, of course, that instead uh, uh, it begins in the senses through the world impressing upon us, through our being in the world as primary, um, as presupposed. So the world is presupposed in our, any sort of thinking. This ends reality around us and the impression it gives on us, meaning 
the way it impresses against me, right? The wind in my face, everything, right? This is actually presupposed, right? Um, but what they say is no, what is presupposed, like what is, uh, what is first is not that, it's the idea of myself. Right? Cartesian self-knowledge comes later uh, and is built upon that foundation. Right? So once this is realized, uh, so basically what we're saying is, um, uh, what the pre-moderns and post-moderns say is no, you know, idea of yourself is not what's first. Uh, Cartesian self-knowledge or knowledge of self comes later and is built on the, another foundation. Once this is realized, the problem of the external world is essentially dissolved, right? Uh, because what happens is once you start with thinking, what I know is myself first, then you have the problem, oh, how do I know this thing outside, right? But that first point that you make, that first assumption, that is the problem, right? That's false. Right? Um, uh, so when I'm doing uh, cogito ergo sum, I'm essentially playing a part, doing a sort of abstraction as mathematicians tend to do. And Descartes was, you know, a mathematician as, as well. This is not my natural complete or attitude or mode, natural mode as a human being. That is not actually what I know first. And what we are left with is the question of explaining how it all works. You know, how do I get outside and so on? Of course, Descartes and others will say, oh, you know, God tells me, or it just happens, or, you know, whatever. I'm not, that, that's a bit of a straw man of Descartes, but that's a rough idea. So uh, he says in Descartes and Poinsot, his book, uh, the primum cognitum, the first thing in awareness for any intellectual creature, Thomas says, is the operation itself of the intellect, an operation he contrasts to the work of a builder, in that, while the builder makes an edifice which stands outside of one building, the work of an intellect remains inside of the one understanding, as its perfection and act. And it is this internal accomplishment of production that is the first thing that is understood by an intellectual being. So far, so good. This fits well with Descartes' claim that I know that I am knowing and know therefore that I am, Cogito ergo sum. But wait, for Aquinas goes on to say that self-awareness is not at all for every intellectual creature consequent automatically upon the internal act of understanding or intellectual concept formation. On the contrary, self-awareness arises in different ways for different kinds of intellectual beings. So we have God, we have angels, we've got human beings. And for human beings in particular, it is, so to say, a rebound effect, a rebound effect consequent on, uh, uh, upon knowing what is outside and other than the self. So along comes a human being, an intellectual creature like God and the angels, and unlike the beasts of the field, but an intellectual creature which neither like the angel is essentially its own act of understanding, nor like the, uh, sorry, uh, this should say uh, like God, right? Uh, nor like the, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, no, 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 it, it, this is right. Neither like the angel, uh, its own act of understanding, nor unlike the angel has an awareness of its own essence as first object. Uh, the human has no such awareness with a, an accompanying self-awareness. Rather, the human intellect has as its first object uh, something that is other than something that is no part of, uh, no part of what belongs to the knower's own subjectivity as such. And what this other that the human intelligence is first aware of precisely is what the nature of a material thing. A physical object acting upon the external senses of the human being just now become intellectually aware of that object as being. This is the ens prima mot cognitum. It starts being understood, not understood. One starts being aware of it at the level of sensation, right? Uh, not fully, just indiscreetly, indeterminately. 
Only after that primary awareness of its outer surroundings is in place, only secondarily and long after somewhere along the passage of years from infancy to childhood, does the human understanding become aware of the internal act by which it is aware of the, uh, uh, become aware of the internal act by which it is aware of the bodily other object of initial and ongoing awareness. Thus, unlike God or any angel and unlike any animal, the initial awareness of the human being occurs preconceptually in sensations, but sensations which, in order to become perceptions, require to be interpreted as objects, the plus minus, you know, zero again, for which the formation of concepts is the precondition. So uh, our mind forms concepts through which it knows objects, and the objects are the things that are created after sensation, right, after uh, we are impressed upon by the, other, the world outside of us. Thus, the human being, like the angel and like any other animal, becomes fully aware of what is other than itself only on the basis of concepts, which are relations, right? which are other representations. They're essayad. Their nature is not to be in themselves, but to point outward. Whence, unlike God and the angel, unlike every other animal, the human being does not become aware of anything at all beyond bare sensations without the assistance of concepts. Concepts are known as formal signs, right? uh, for those that uh, know, um, have studied logic especially scholastic logic, uh, meaning that they don't have any content of themselves except to refer to something else, right? um, the, the kind of concepts you're talking about here. Uh, and indeed, initially in concepts which are not intellectual. So there's perceptual concepts created by the internal sensation. Uh, and then there's concepts that, are, uh, that come out as a result of intellection on top of that. Yet, unlike every other animal, the human animal becomes aware of the difference between objects and things, including its own intellectual activity, derivatively. Unlike Descartes, who says this happens, this is the foundation, it happens at the start, they're saying, no, this is derivative. This, you know, cogito ergo sum is later, right? Um, uh, deri derivatively from this initial awareness of uh, of material uh, objects in the surrounding environment as involving also intellectual concepts. So much so for cogito ergo sum. And even after the human animal has totally become secondarily aware of its own awareness, to come to understand the nature of this awareness and its difference from the purely perceptual awareness of objects common to all animals will happen, if at all, only by way of sustained and difficult investigation, such as philosophical investigation, like we're doing here. Um, so uh, yeah, this we already know, uh, just a account of different faculties, right? So uh, I think we'll end on this paragraph. Uh, yes, uh, well, the two paragraphs there, but maybe we can finish here. So uh, if you've noticed, if we are aware of what just has been said, there seems to be a paradox. A paradox. So Didi tells you why it's not a paradox. What is a paradox? So I hope the paradox in the foregoing remarks is apparent. How can you consult two things? That an internal accomplishment of production in every case of intellection is that which is first known. So our internal our intellection, our perception, our sensation, all of these things uh, uh, from the bottom to the top work to create this thing called the being as first known. This sensation, perception, understanding of a kind of being. Not the being of the cat, not the being of a thought, but something, some sort of initial understanding of being. What is that? Like, so our, our faculties create that. But yet we're saying that that which is first known in the singular case of human understanding 
is something external to the one knowing and by no means immediately involves the self-awareness. So how is it that this notion of being appears in us, so it's inside, but yet we say it as a result of that which is outside? Seems to be like, you know, what's the connection there, right? Well, the paradox is resolved and appearance of contradiction is removed only when, if we bring to the fore an element that Aquinas is aware of, but leaves in the background, namely that the other representations are concepts, are psychological states that of their very nature give rise to relations, in turn super subjective of their very nature and terminating according in, uh, according in what is other than the subjectivity in which the founding qualities in here as individual characteristics subjective to the north. So it is not because, let's just finish this. It is not because I think therefore, uh, I think therefore I am. It is not even because I think that I am aware that I am in as much as the essence of thought that involves concepts, which excludes God and the self-awareness of angels, but not the angels awareness of other things uh, than itself in the creation and not in the awareness of animals. Uh, so it is, uh, 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 so, uh, in as much as the essence of thought that involves concepts is the awareness of what is other than the concept by which it is known. So, angels begin with self awareness, animals begin with other awareness. And that condition holds even when the other is the human knower, subsequently uh, become aware of itself as one of the things of which it is aware objectively, uh, objectively in, in their own knowledge. That is, one of the things become object, where thing means what exists or did exist, or even will or could exist, regardless of being known. By this point in the story, the reader may perhaps suspect uh, that the initial problem of early modern philosophy, sinoscopically speaking, was the confusion of the way of science and the way of ideas by of con conflating representations simply. So uh, we, we, the problem was that these things called objects, the things as known, were understood to be self-representations uh, and uh, instead of other representations. The two are hardly the same, differing as objects, uh, objects from things. They're very different. The different, they're, you know, in that diagram that you saw, right? They're completely different kinds of beings. Okay. Um, uh, in the first place, and uh, sorry, uh, differing as objects uh, from things in the first place, and a significant from uh, signs in the second place. In the formula cogito ergo sum, we may say that Descartes has confused humans and angels, because angels know themselves first, and so on. Thus, having begun his meditations on first philosophy in uh, 1541 with a universal doubt, quickly followed in the second meditation with the supposed discovery of the self as essentially a thinking thing, not to say an angel, being beyond all doubt, he turns finally in the last of the meditations to the detail of the external world. Um, should be a, 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 there should be a bracket here. Uh, Descartes reaches at last the very point from which Aquinas and Poinsot see human understanding at first, taking its distinctive departure. Descartes says, it remains for me to examine after you know, starting with the mind, whether material things exist, adding, and at least I know, at least I now know material things are capable of existing insofar as they are subject matter, pure mathematics. So yeah, um, Dili ends this with saying that, you know, things are upside down as the Bible says, right? Uh, you know, towards the end of time or something, things have become upside down. And that's, you know, that's how he ends it. Um, so just to summarize it, you know, uh, this section, uh, the, uh, the whole process of how we come to know things, what we know first, what we know after that, and what uh, developed upon that, that is the mistake. That's where uh, the, the, the moderns differ from the pre-moderns and from the post-moderns in the way Dili is talking about. 
once you fix that, and when you talk, once you talk about that in detail in terms of how the mind goes from that very first stage of knowing being and supremum, all the way to knowing everything else, right? About knowing the categories, knowing what's out there in the world, knowing judges and, and culture. And once, once you can explain that using your psychology and your philosophy in general, then you have a good explanatory framework for understanding you know, mental existence and all that stuff, right? You don't need to go to uh, modern philosophy, right? And this is not the end of it, but this is just the start of you know, uh, um, his entire uh, ideas. Okay, so let me stop there and uh, sorry for uh, delaying a lot. Uh, so we can open for questions if people are not asleep and have questions. Thank you so much, uh, Habibi. Uh, that was extremely enjoyable. Um, how do I hold on? Um, uh, please forgive me. I'm going to have to. Um, <clears throat> do I have to make myself a host or am I a co host? I'm just wondering if I'll be able to get the recording. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I need to. I think I need to switch you back to uh, pass on host. Reinstate um, me. Um, uh, I've known Sidi Sachi uh, since 2008. Our paths crossed in the Middle East, um, and then we lost touch for many years. And uh, to our great delight, you know, uh, however many years down the line, we we found out that we have many philosophical interests in common. Um, I think I think Dealey's um, approach is absolutely fascinating. Um, I think we are, uh, to some degree, limited in time. Personally, I am, unfortunately, because I have to go and pick up my children. Um, but um, I, I'm, I'm going to venture, if that's okay, to, to anyone who feels like staying or please don't feel any obligation, uh, to uh, just a few comments um, just that I think would um, contextualize what we've heard in the larger context of the, um, the sessions that we've been having. So, um, I mean, there's obviously an, an amazing crossover between the late Kalam theory of Nafs al-Amr, the, uh, the, let's say, late Avicennan theory of Nafs al-Amr. I mean, that would be stretching it a bit. And, and, and the, the school of Sheikh al-Akbar theory of Nafs al-Amr. Um, in that, there's an understanding that in order for the world to be intelligible, and in, in order for uh, uh, there, there, there's no possibility of uh, this austere world of, of whether they're atom substances or the Aristotelian substances which constitute primary reality and then somehow the mental stuff is either highly derivative of the extra mental particular stuff or uh, it's imposed onto the extra mental particular stuff. Um, so the idea that, I mean, as it, it says in the, the, the basic uh, expression of the theory of Nafs al-Amad in its most basic form is just Sidq al-Qadiyya nafs al-Amad, the truth of a proposition uh, is its correspondence to Nafs al-Amad. Um, so, you know, what we've seen insofar as I was able to understand this very complex, although your, your presentation was very lucid, mashallah, but but uh, in terms of, uh, I've, I understood that that's the intersubjective imminently and somehow and perhaps transcendently the, 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 the suprasubjective. Um, now, there's a few other things that came to mind. One of them is perhaps divergences 
Um, one of them is that I didn't get the sense, I got the sense that to some degree, there is a kind of static conceptualization of these three domains, if you want to say the subjective, the objective, and the intersubjective turning into the, or presupposing the suprasubjective. Um, I didn't get the impression that the suprasubjective informs and enters into the nature of what we'd call extra mental particulars. And I thought there was a, a kind of static sense to the idea that, well, we can refer to subjects in that traditional sense as just things. They are, they are the substrata. And in a, in a way, there did seem to be a kind of bias towards the, the uh, an Aristotelian view of, of substance there. Also, the simultaneity of, of uh, that conceptualization of subjects as somehow bare objects with the necessity of knowing them seemed to me to be very descriptive rather than philosophical in a, in a, me a truly metaphysical or causal way, because somehow it's almost like you have the primary intelligible and the secondary intelligible and that supervenes on the substance construed as somehow existing on its own and that kind of does already possibly commit and I'm, I'm sure there's a terrible misunderstanding but these are thoughts which come to mind it does possibly commit the very error that that Dealey is is perhaps trying to remedy um the the uh, I, I also have an issue um just to be slightly more critical, possibly, of Dealey with, not that I have any right to, but again, it's um, things that come to mind, is the uh, this focus on the traditional meaning of subject and object. Whereas I think actually that way of dividing things also really doesn't do the job either. Um, interestingly, subject in the modern sense of subjective actually comes from the same not just word, but the same philosophical concept. It's the substratum, but the substratum as applied to the, the knowing subject. So this, the knowing subject is the subject of all of the representations, all of the mental existences, all of the input that comes in. Um, and that, that is not without its precedent, certainly in the Islamic tradition, of the five types of, of let's say, Avicennan, these words are not always that helpful, but let's say Avicen and substance, Akal and, and, and Nafs are two of them. So they are subjects in, in that uh, traditional philosophical sense as well. Um, I, I'd say that what corresponds, I mean, the thing, the reason that I'm inclined to continue to use subject, sub, subject and object in the modern sense is because actually in the Islamic tradition, the, which is interesting because they are they have very divergent developments and they are very different traditions, although there's so much crossover. But the Islamic tradition, I would say that that fundamental, we, all, we of course don't have the, the, the subject and the object. You never call a, a, a you know, knowing subject a maldor or something, although of course the soul and the intellect are subjects. But I would say the fundamental distinction is between the i'tibari, and this in the broadly Avicennan view, is between the i'tibari and the wujud khariji. Right, as we've discussed before, the wujud khariji is the muta'ayin entity, right, and that is already problematic. There's a lot of assumptions, imminentist assumptions there. Uh, the artibari, contrary to popular opinion, uh, popular conceptions, does not mean 
straightforwardly subjective in a modern sense. It just means that which is uh, part and parcel is constitutive of human cognition. So you can have there atibariyat fardiya, which are pure suppositions. You can have, let's say, well, what if that table was was orange? You can have Artibariyat Ikhtiraiya, which is like, you know, let me make a story about uh, Middle Earth and it will have Gandalf and it will have you know, Game of Thrones and, and Wheel of Time and whatever, the whole universe that you want to create, which makes me sound very geeky. Perhaps I am. I will never di divulge these secrets about myself. But um, the, uh, that's an Ikhtirai, you know, and that's a, a very clearly recognized uh, category in, in the tradition. Then you have al-artibari al-haqiqi, and that's where it gets really interesting because the artibari the al-haqiqi is defined as the artibari that corresponds to nafs al-amr. So in a way, the development of Islamic thought in, in this regard, at least, you can see as the move, just as you've very beautifully shown that there's this this you know, move towards greater sophistication in, in scholasticism, but the uh, but, but it's the move from in that correspondence theory, the idea that you're moving from the correspondence of what are in some sense mental representations, which we don't really know what they are, where they're from, what they're rooted in, but mental representations to the extra mental object with that bias towards, well, the extramental object is just the, really the sensible individuated particular object to the idea that no, there are real mental, there, 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 there are real distinct mental objects in the modern sense, mental objects, which, well, obviously intertwined with the traditional sense, but mental objects, which, have a common source with the manifestations that we see in, in the, 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 the distinct extra mental world, the, the outward world. Um, but even that outward world only possesses intelligibility because it participates, rather it doesn't just participate, it constitutes a branch of a prior intelligible world, which is distinct in itself. So we are participating through a relation to that world in our mode of knowledge and all of the appearances as they appear to us in their distinctness are only able to do so also because they're participating in that world. Um, actually, to uh, the understanding of the body world and the extra mental world becomes pretty much useless unless extra mental it comes to be moradif to nafs al-amr. An, uh, an actually much more helpful distinction would, between, but would be between al-wujud al-muta'ayyin and al-wujud al-muta'mayyiz. So you have the wujud, which is muta'ayyin, which is individuated, and you have wujud, which is muta'mayyiz. So all of our distinct mental concepts are muta'mayyiz. All of the the, the intelligible apparatuses, you could say that our, in our tradition, the world is the web spun by the transcendentals. All the intelligible apparatuses that actually inform the material world, such that you have 
you know, these substantial unities, and they, as, indeed they exist in relations, as you've referred uh, to that, um, and that beautiful distinction between the supersubjective and the intersubjective, and the supersubjective being necessary. Um, uh, uh, the, the, these are instances of the overlapping of nafs al-amr in the sensible world. So those mutamayiz entities, which are what we would call the universal concepts that, that inform the intelligibility of the world on which the intelligibility of the world relies upon, are mutamayiz. They're not mutayin. And so there's this overlapping between al-tamayiz and, and ta'ayin. Another thing I, <clears throat> I, I would love to read more in Delhi and understand if this dimension does exist, is the idea of the role of spiritual purification in oneself, in some sense, becoming more universal, becoming more of a real being, uh, becoming uh, closer in oneself to the real, and there being a dynamic process there also. Um, and uh, and I think that would be that, that's a, a very the, the, the last thing, because I know I'm going on and do forgive me, but the last thing which um, I wanted to say was just uh, I was slightly taken aback, but it was a mix of, of, of great insight and and things that made me slightly taken aback, probably just because of the outward laugh of the thing. Um, when uh, Dealey said that somehow it was inevitable that uh, this shift took place. Um, between what you've called the, uh, is it the cenoscopic and the ideoscopic, and that somehow there's really nothing wrong with the ideoscopic, and it was just the, the, this inevitable process which, which was held back by the church. Um, I, for one thing, I, I thought this was you know, very brave of Dealey to say, it. as I understand it, he was he's a Catholic, and uh, it's a very it's a very anti-Catholic um, narrative. But on the other hand, it didn't seem to make total sense of the situation. I, and I know you were only uh, bringing up one small part of it, but um, but I just think for the sake of, of bringing these issues to mind, you know, uh, I mean, relegating final causes to uh, from the domain of physics, um, the idea that it's absolutely necessary that we sever physics from metaphysics um, and it can no longer be, you know, uh, to have its place in that subalternated model. Um, the, uh, the, the, the new distinction between primary and secondary causes, which you find in Bacon, you find in Descartes, you find in Locke, you find absolutely all over the place. Um, and also uh, people like Bacon, who um, essentially were the first, I mean, Bacon is possibly the first person ever to advise a government that they need to do scientific research in order to become even more powerful. And of course, they're a Protestant nation. And there was also a very strong desire on the part of Protestant nations because of the huge raptures that had happened as a result of the Reformation to simply make a decisive break, indeed to reject for the sake of rejecting the scholastic synthesis. Um, and of course, you have the influence of nominalism. Uh, you have the in influence of Luther. You have the the desire to have a new, so-called neutral uh, criterion for for truth, which wouldn't upset Protestants or Catholics. So, of course, there are, there are many 
uh, rich issues, which have, uh, I'm sure that someone like Dealey uh, speaks about somewhere, but these are the things that came to mind. I will now uh, hand over to my dear Molana um, Sidi Cream, please. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you, Sidi, for that talk. I just think that these, uh, you brought up a lot of things, Hassan, Sidna. Um, and I think these things can be perhaps need a session on their own because I think Dili needs to be looked at and, and understood and, and analyzed and assessed uh, in the background of the River Forest School and what they were trying to do. I think the narrative that you brought out, uh, Sidi Hassan, is really important because it goes to the root of the matter. Uh, as to what we see as the inevitable march of certain thinking processes, or was there an aberration that took place? I think this is where Dili is very, very uh, circumspect um, in dealing with this, and um, Benedict is the same, and uh, Ashley, and, and all these people, that there needs to be some more, uh, I think, thrashing out of this, because I think the Catholics took a wrong turn, personally, um, and I think they are paying the cost at the moment of this. So it is worthwhile uh, perhaps to discuss this further, but not at this juncture because it's getting late. But I do think that perhaps a session, if you are doing another, are you doing another session, Sidi? Wait, wait, are you doing another session? Because I think if you were, perhaps that might be spent uh, in, in, uh, in talking about some of these points um it's very important because i have another session i think that would be really really a lot of yeah uh, perhaps city another since you mentioned it perhaps a a session possibly a joint session with the two of you on on thomism as a broader phenomenon i mean i know that city i mean we'd be absolutely honored but i mean i know that city satchi is not uh, a kind of gung-ho uh, thomist believer um, but uh, but but I think bringing these, I mean, this is obviously a very sophisticated and comprehensive philosophy, something that needs to be taken very seriously. I, I don't think a joint session is needed. I think it, it's just to discuss these things that you brought out, um, Hassan. I think they're really important, given that um, given that the a lot of the philosophies that are coming out of Toronto and elsewhere and and People are very interested in Catholicism. There is a there is an image abroad that they have got their act together and are thinking about things in a very deep way. Of course, one of the main problems with it is uh, we look at uh, we look at uh, intellectual thought as a means uh, of expressing the inner journey of the transformation of the soul, uh, not as a mechanistic, automatistic kind of. Uh, process that takes place by people contemplating something. The contemplation of something, the meditation upon something is, is entirely dependent upon the nature of the soul that is doing the meditation or the contemplation. And so there is a, there is a slight disconnect with looking at things in that kind of objective way that he sometimes talks about. There's an almost automaticity or mechanistic nature that he seems to allude to. But anyway, uh, I will I will be quiet. But I think perhaps a lot of these points should be thrashed out. Uh, also, in order to show what what we can take from these kind of philosophies, uh, you mentioned the Jesuits. I think that's also very interesting. Uh, the various schools of Jesuit scholasticates, uh, whether it be in Jersey or the school of uh, 
uh, of Coimbra or, or elsewhere, there's a, there's a few others that are also very interesting to look at, um, especially as curricula that were introduced for the uh, teaching of logic and philosophy. Um, and I think there are things there that can give us an idea and uh, a few links as to why Dealey produced what he produced. So there's, there's a background uh, story that needs to be um, looked at, which is not just for the sake of academic curiosity, but I think it helps us to understand uh, how we can have something sensible to say about uh, the larger view of science today. Anyway. Thank you so much, uh, Habibi, for those very apposite points. Um, yeah, perhaps we can organise something, maybe for for, for spring, uh, early spring or something. Sidi, uh, would you like to say anything, Melana Sachi, is in closing, and then I think hey, we'll uh, call it a day. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with uh, both of you guys. I mean, we need to have uh, some more sessions, ideally, uh, to to focus on very specific questions to see, you know, what's the sort of, um, firstly, the background of Dili uh, related. Specifically to uh, the late classic traditions, and what he thinks about some of the specific points, uh, and so how how useful is he for us? Uh, where can we fit him? Right, because obviously he's not uh, exactly like you said. Like he's not talking about the way they understand philosophy or the, the way the way they understand um, you know the goals of um, uh, you know, wisdom, right? Or the seeking of wisdom is different from how we do it, right? Um, so yeah, it'd be, it'd be good to have those sessions. Uh, but just to kind of uh, put out a few things that uh, based on what you said, so yes, he does uh, at, uh, in different places. Well, firstly, their kind of um, the poem, right, is not uh, richly connected and um, sort of sufficiently combined and coherent with their philosophical traditions necessarily, right? Depending on wh whether you go to, um, uh, you know, the the, the this or that tarika, this or that group, right? Um, but uh, I mean, for the Catholic, within the Catholic, right? What Billy does in his four ages, his tome, his you know big sort of book, is he says, look, uh, uh, he talks about the henological versus the ontological. So he, where he talks about Neoplatonism, right? So he says, look, this uh, when the Neoplatonists or Platonists are talking about the uh, the one and henology, when they're talking about uh, mysticism and mystical experience. They are not, they're going uh, uh, under or beyond, depending on how you look at it, uh, what he calls philosophy, right? Uh, so the, 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 um, uh, the principle of non-contradiction, which is what the ends primum with cognizant allows us to develop, right? Uh, that is not relevant anymore for them, right? And he, so he, he quotes Aristotle, uh, where Aristotle agrees with this, that yeah, we should, we have to follow the PNC, but if we agree that the PNC does not apply or is not relevant in this mode of knowing or whatever, as long as we agree to it, then it's okay, right? Very roughly, right? So he does give a space to that, right? Free uh, ontological knowing, right? Uh, that this and that, the individuated kind of knowing, this and not that. This kind of knowing is below or you know, more basic than the, uh, the kind of knowing that is particular to mysticism, which is a inner kind of knowing, which is not about this and not that. Right, that is not the kind of uh, main uh, way to characterize it. Everything else, which he calls philosophical knowing, you know, of Aristotle and everybody else, that's all based on the PNC, right? Um, so he, he does give a space to that, but there's not much discussion beyond that, right? As to how, uh, how kind of uh, spiritual practice, how zuhud, how all these kind of things complement and develop 
one's philosophical acumen and all that kind of stuff. I, I haven't seen that in BU, right? Uh, so yeah, for sure. Um, the um, uh, the thing Sheikh Hassan said, uh, uh, oh yeah, but just a quick point about the idioscopic. So Dili doesn't, when Dili is saying that the idioscopic should have been a, a natural development of the sinoscopic, he does not, he just means that uh, sciences which require tools and special training. He doesn't mean the sciences that then did develop, which got rid of final causes and messed everything up. You know, he, he hates that, right? He's not talking about those things. He's talking about just the subject, the nature of the subject area of the idioscopic, which is something that is differentiated from the sinoscopic because it uses tools and you know, mathematization and whatever. There's nothing wrong with that uh, if it correctly follows the sinoscopic in a coherent way, which means to not ignore final causes and all that, right? If you do that well, there's nothing in itself wrong with that. If you don't do that, then you've divorced uh, idioscopy from the proper sinoscopic foundations and you have modern science, right? Um, so that's that. Uh, the Itibari thing was very interesting. So. Um, uh, what you call itibari, uh, one of the categories of itibari, he calls a mind-dependent reality, right? So it is real, but it's something that depends on the mind, mind to, to, to be real, right? Um, so the, 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 it'd be interesting to see how the different itibari character, uh, uh, categories that you mentioned, how we can fit that into those diagrams, or if we can at all, right? And then it comes, you know, this nasal amr, um, the question is, what is it, right? And what does it, how can you divide it? If that is a thing that we want to do, right? Um, that is what Dili is trying to do, in a sense, because he, when he's dividing, you know, when he's got these diagrams and he's dividing your mental world and ends reality and all this kind of stuff, that is a that is a division of his natural amr, uh, like as in reality as it really is. Uh, but it's not the complete diagram, you know. That's just the down below, right? There is then God and angels and all these other things that he doesn't talk about. Uh, it, well, he doesn't. Uh, the things I showed does not talk about his understanding of that. When you bring in those other things, then yes, uh, what they will say is everything at that level, every substance, every relation, every you know, all of that uh, takes it you know insofar as it, it, it well because they're essay right, they're act, they're in act right. Hence, they can only come from that which is purely act, which is God right. Um, as to their participation in other intermediate realities and other things. There's a whole, he doesn't go into that, but there's a whole you know, discussion of, of that and participation is there. What is lacking is a discussion of participation and emanation with respect to relation, right? Uh, th there is some discussion, but there is exactly. not much. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that, all that needs to come out, absolutely. Uh, 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 final thing, uh, well, one thing would be really good, uh, Sidi Karim mentioned the River Forest School as a background for Delhi. And it'll be good to know what issues to look out for there so I can investigate that a bit more so I can see if it's in Delhi as well. And the other thing finally is, ah, yeah. So you're right, uh, I didn't talk about, uh, Sidi Hassan, I didn't talk much of, like when I talked about the outside world coming into mind and all that, it was quite descriptive, right? Uh, th this is true, absolutely. I, I didn't talk about the you know, uh, deeper detail of this, which is actually in several books, including this one, which talks about the causes at play. So when, um, I know this speaker, like when I see the image of it or when I get to know it, it actually causes, uh, it actually causes a change in me, right? Uh, and it's a kind of imminent change as well as a sensitive change, which is not, in, uh, you know, a physical change as well as a non-physical change, right? Quote, unquote. Um, and this kind of change, uh, they call it, call it the objective specification, which is a type of formal cause. 
It's an external formal cause. It's not coming from within me. It doesn't determine how I am, but it's coming from outside of me and it determines something in me from the outside. So it's the objective formal cause and the type of causation it is relative to the other four causes and so on. He goes into in, in quite a bit of uh, detail, uh, which is what I didn't go into. But yeah, sorry, so that, 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 that's it. Um, that's absolutely beautiful, Maulana. I, I thank you so much again. Uh, it was very, very enjoyable and very, very stimulating. Um, and uh, I, I just, the, the one thing that occurred to me that is not really a comment, but just it, the, the overall impression I had is that there is a distinction, which I think has to be made, which may be the, the fundamental one. If we, under, if, let's say we, 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 we try to understand, you know, philosophies that, perhaps we think have a, a greater harmony between uh, revealed, you know, the, the, the world of Kashf and, and revealed religion and, and Aql and those which perhaps don't attain to that level. Um, I mean, what you'll find in the Nafs al-Amr book is that I, eventually we uncover these understandings of Nafs al-Amr where Nafs al-Amr cannot be divided. Um, Nafs al is not the world of appearance. So it is a very, it's a thoroughly platonic idea. Everything we see around us can't be Nafs al in any way. Um, so that's one way of looking. And then the other late Kalam way of looking at Nafs al is no, Nafs al can be divided. The, the, the distinct extra, uh, mental world is Nafs al The extra mental particular world is Nafs al You know, some other, you know, through a glass darkly discerned type places, uh, a Nafs al possibly, um, and that kind of thing. So th there are perhaps, and this is perhaps something the late discussion, two quite distinct uh, approaches. It would be interesting to try to find out where that late scholastic tradition really fits. But I think we're way beyond the time, so that will have to be for, for another time. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for attending, um, uh, and, and, and please keep us in your prayers. Jazakum Allah khairan, everyone. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Ah, uh, I can't